a true delicious do. Oh, ho, ho, I'm hungry. Santa, my pebbles! Your pebbles! Tis the season to be sharing, Fred. Happy holidays, pal. Oh, Fred. Fruity and Cocoa Pebbles cereals, part of this nutritious breakfast. Ho, 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 ho. The Disney Sunday Movie, brought to you by great-tasting post-fruity and cocoa pebble cereals. Happy holidays from your friends in Bedrock, and may all of your dreams be delicious. Sitting back on the couch now. All the trimmings have put on around your house and trees up and lit and nice. Yeah, it looks nice this year. We got the manure in the window as well. Keeping it keeping it real. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we want to be inclusive. Uh, and looking around and how the place is all nice, you know, it just, and we got some eggnog got we're sipping on. Got that pine. Got that pine smell that's making my nose slightly itchy. And we have all fake presents under the tree so that you and I can play with our train set and have G- Cobra try to take over and get the weather dominator off the train. But G.I. Joe has to intervene and maybe the cops or any uh, Batman and any <laughs> other toys that we have may help intervene as well. These are the times we like. It's fun. Very fun. Got the fire crackling. Yeah, you the, you, I don't know if the mics are picking up the fire crackling <laughs> in the background on our TV. We have the old TV fire on. Got a nice sip of eggnog. Yeah, got some eggnog going, you know. We got a warm drink for later. We might have some mola wine if we, because uh, the eggnog is cold. It might mess up our throats, you know, drinking all that milk and dairy. But, yeah, you know, it's nice. Makes you think about the year. We've had a nice year, right, in retrospective. The 2019 season of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jay Blake. And I'm Dion Baia, and this is a very special holiday Christmas episode. Closing out Closing 2019. Out. Yeah, the season was a, was, a, was a heavy hitter this year. We were, trying to, we were delivering some of our hardest-hitting uh, uh, news in this, this, uh, this season. I don't know. Was this the year that we started with Willow? Did, is this the year we started <laughs> with Willow? That's a good question. What was our first movie? <laughs> so far movie? back, I don't remember. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't uh, uh, Highlander. That was last year, huh? Yeah. Or, right. or, or the year before? Who knows? Highlander seems like it was. That was. The, that, I think that was ages last year. Ago. That was a lifetime ago. A thousand centuries ago. Um, I think yeah. Willow started this year out, and then I mean, Assault on Precinct Thirteen was this year, right? It was, wasn't it? That was like in May. This was uh, the summer of sequels. Summer of sequels. Cliffhanger, Iker Sanction, uh, Kung Fu February, Mountain, mount, <laughs> mountain Climbing, Kung Fu February. Um, mountain Fu. Mountain Fu. Um, I don't remember what we did in um, the other January movie. Uh, I don't know, but we also did Rear Window this we year. We did Rear Window. and Yeah, that we did that. We did then celebrating the summer of sequels when we got in there. Uh, what, what Didn't we do a big uh, comedy Early in the time, I feel like there was a comedy around March ish. Um, I'm gonna say it wasn't Clue, but something of that level of funniness. Um, hmm, 
But then the summer sequels kicked open the door, and we had T2. Did we do John Wick this year? We did John Wick this year as well. We did that. Uh, that was might have been our newest movie to date. Um, let's see. Let me just poke the, the TV fire <laughs> a little bit, get those uh, ambers burning. Um, what else did we have? We had um, T2. We had uh, Return to Oz, Wizard of Oz, double feature. Yeah, Predator 2. Predator 2. Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom. A lot of prep this year. A lot, <laughs> a lot of big episodes. A lot of prep. We're reading, we're reading remember, we're reading Bomb for, for Wizard of Oz, and, and then Dion read the entire Wizard of Oz book series, and a lot of novelization reading this year. Uh, yeah, Temple of Doom. Evil Dead 2. Evil Dead 2. Um, I feel like we did another horror movie. Well, we had a what other horror movie... Uh, October Jesus extravaganza. Remember that we yeah we just coming off of that that was also us doing all the uh, anthology movies anthology this year. movies Themed. yeah so that was uh, four movies and twenty five stories if we came up with it <laughs> something like that at least yeah then we did Rudy our uh, our November Thanksgiving sports for family for a few dollars more for a few dollars more was the summertime as well that was near the end our anniversary movie was Superman two Superman two we're kind of like we're still we're holding holding off past Labor Day. <laughs> we're keeping the summer of sequels going. Yeah, at least until the fall set in. And then we did um, the Muppet movie this past year. That was celebrating an anniversary. We had a lot of anniversaries this year. And now, uh, unbeknownst to us, last week, two weeks ago, we did um, uh, what the hell did we do two weeks ago? Christmas vacation. Christmas vacation, which we realized in the recording was a sequel. Yeah. Uh, so that was a sequel, but we're coming back this episode. Since sequels were such a big part of 2019. Yeah, we, we kept f- this in the, our back pocket. <laughs> we figured we'd close out the air with just one more sequel. One more sequel. We were holding this one out, and this was actually a fan request. Um, we had mo- maybe more than one someone uh, say to us they were hoping that they were going to see this show up in the summer sequels. Tonight we're doing uh, Batman Returns from 1992. Dun, 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 dun. Um, that's not the. I'm singing the wrong thing. Yes, uh, June 16th in uh, June 19th, 1992, and um, a sequel in, indeed. And we're closing out. And not only is it a Christmas-centric movie for the holiday, it is also we're throwing a sequel out again. Too many sequels. One last. One last time. <laughs> Getting dark. Sun's out. Where are we going for breakfast? Don't want to go far. Rough night. Baby, Dad. So, um, this is fun. We get to revisit Batman for the third time. We did the animated series. We did the original 1989 Batman. Our first anniversary Our, episode. Yeah, was Batman way back in whatever year that was. 2015, right? Because our first we started in September of 2014. With the Punisher was our inaugural episode. And then we did Batman 89. Yeah, Batman 89. And that was a long one. And that was when we started to realize the, the prep factor and what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, that was our longest one to date. To date. Because back then, episodes were clocking in at like... An hour. Anywhere between an hour 15 uh, to an hour and a half. And that was long. <laughs> we were like, ooh. Well, we got long on that one. Yeah, exactly. Then when and Batman then, came. And then we did Batman. We like kicked open the, yeah. the door. We were eating Flood that poison broke. cereal. Remember that? We ate the bad oh, yeah. th- we ate cereal that we had to go get our stomachs was pumped. It, was our Batman Returns cereal? Maybe I should have 
got a box of Batman Returns cereal. Maybe you should have. That would have been a good idea. <laughs> I didn't think of that. She's been eating raw fish. Um, yeah, that was that was, and then Jesus, we we so we and we talked about Batman to death. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember what we talked about other than the fact that we ate cereal that was that was twenty five years old. But uh, and now that we're celebrating this, Batman turned thirty this past June, the nineteen eighty nine movie. And it does seem like yesterday, when I'm reading the internet research in Batman Returns, people reference Batman, and they're like, you know, a lot of us old-timers remember when Batman 89 came out, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, opening night, I saw that bad boy. I saw that shit opening night, too. Yeah, I remember running to the bathroom and and, and having to, to, you know, use the bathroom, running out and almost bumping into the girl crush I had. I was in fourth grade, and she was in sixth grade, Lisa, the old... um, she was a safety patrol <laughs> at my uh, at my style, you know, at the corner. And I had to go, but I was like, "Excuse me, Lisa, I gotta get back to my seat." And but I, that's one of the best experiences of my life is the Batman screening that, and you know, and the crowd cheering when the bat wing went up and perfectly silhouetted the moon and the symbol and coming back down, and it just really opened your eyes a whole different era. Yeah, I kind of remembered uh, this. When we were watching this, oddly enough, I remembered, maybe I remembered it back when we did it on the on the show, but I recalled that I had seen the first one twice in the movie theater. Yeah, which I saw the set first one twice, too. Because I went, my, my stepdad took me, like, midnight showing. Nice. Like, the, the night before it came out. Wow. Um, and then, I think I went with my dad and my brother. Yeah. To like, see. Like, later in the summer. Yeah. Um, but uh, also worth noting that I think this is an anniversary for Batman too. Didn't he was like nineteen thirty nine? Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, this is an anniversary for Batman this that, year. Yeah, and uh, this certainly is. I don't know how to do the math. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. It's eighty, right? Because if you add two to thirty nine from now, it'd be twenty nine thirty nine. So it's the eighty say, anniversary. We're going to say it's eighty. We're going to yeah. say Batman turned eighty. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy. That's pretty uh, good to know. Uh. And here we are, Batman Returns from 1992. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would imagine that we, uh, most of the prep that we would do for a big movie leading up to it kind of got done in Batman, our Batman episode. And even the animated series had some of it in there. So, And all the other, you know, that's all the same pond we wade into with The Shadow and with Rocketeer and with Indiana Jones. Yeah. So I think the you're right, the history prep of leading up to Batman Returns, I think it's more interesting the story of Batman Returns I think itself. we're just going to focus on yeah. their movie and uh, and, the, and the history of Christmas <laughs> <laughs> to the ages and we're going to go through the first they called St. Nicholas and, the, and Christopher in the woods um, but Batman Returns I remember uh, growing up and being in uh, college with you and I remember you telling me this was your favorite of the two at the time mm-hmm. probably still is Okay, it's actually probably my favorite of all the Batman movies uh, Yeah, and, and that you're making that decision after rewatching it tonight, or you've had no, that probably now for a while. always. I mean, you know, you know, yeah, and you know, I, I was never a big fan of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Well, I and Blake, you know, I wasn't either, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I mean, you know, uh, now they've become the standard, and fine, people have whatever you know. That's why they they made horse racing, and you know, that's uh, because people have opinions about stuff. But I think what it comes down to the the biggest thing for me that even the show Gotham did right was that he the Nolan movies in my personal opinion doesn't set the atmosphere of the world where like just the set design and the and the 
the the production value and I never got into the tumbler. You know, when you see Anton First's Batmobile, you know, uh that's amazing compared and and people like the tumbler and I get the the sake of realism, but by the second or third movie, you thought he would have made it a little more Batman-y, <laughs> you know what I mean? And even the suit I didn't like in Batman for, you know, to me, Michael Keaton, Bruce Wayne, Michael Keaton is Batman, the Batman suit in these two movies, um, the Batmobile in these two movies, Batcave, but more importantly, Gotham City. And then yeah. when you even see Gotham on the show, it's New York City, but they did, they did, they just did a little CGI here and there and yeah. made it a little, and that's even Changed what the skyline. Yeah. And added more. a little more buildings, make it a little more like you would eighties, like you would think a Gotham is. And then the newest movie, the Joker that just came out as of this recording, they do the same thing. They make it a, a New York city, ambiguous eighties, but they just, the CGI is used to just take things away or add here or there. Yeah. So it, it looks like a, I b- immediately believe the world where in the Nolan movies, clearly one movies you're in Chicago Next movie, you're clearly in New York City. In another movie, you're in Pittsburgh. And there was just no... And for me, I like the moody atmosphere. And then in the third movie, he's, it's like bright daylight. And he's running around. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, the whole point is that he's supposed to be in the dark. But that was even Nolan even said. He's like, I want to keep it... I, you know, show Batman as, not, as he's not been shown before. Yeah. You know, so I mean, yeah. there's definitely elements of the Nolan movies I like. Yeah, I mean, I would never discourage anyone from... You know, if they li- if they love them, yeah, to, to, from loving them, they just didn't really speak to me so much. I mean, I don't hate them. I mean, and there's stuff in there like the performances. Heath Ledger's amazing. Um, what's his face who played Two Face? I loved. Um, you know, there's certain people I thought. Uh, what's his face was pretty good too. Tom Hardy. Some people didn't like his Bane. I love myself Gary Oldman. I can watch him reading the phone book. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'll, I'll watch him in anything. And so there's elements. I always also felt they were too long. You know, I wasn't really into the first one as much, too. I mean, I don't want this to be a bashing Nolan movies, but the reason I bring all this up is because people now hold the Nolan movies in such high regard that when they look back at the Burton movies, they la- they say, that's camp. And they're like, that's too camp. You know, and I don't know if they forget the 66 show. <laughs> you know, but it's the yeah. understanding of where Batman was at, which we've talked about before, in the 60s into the 70s, and then the reset. I don't know if people who didn't live through it don't realize the significance of the first Batman movie on the world and then especially Batman Returns as being kind of the first it's paving new ground and you know Batman opens kicks open the door yeah. in 1989 sets a standard but then Batman Returns then kind of just starts paving the road so to speak the interstate yeah. you know with all kinds of you know being dark you know uh, the, just everything that now you see taken for granted in these whole franchise superhero movies yeah i mean i mean i would imagine you know i I think uh many of our viewers are our age so they i mean our listeners are are our age so i I mean those people know the importance of batman 89 i think it would be hard for anybody to imagine um what it was like in 1988 89 leading up to the movie and yeah. the impact that the movie had because I don't I was thinking this again another I was I was deep in thought while we watched this movie thinking about, sure. <laughs> about all these I mean, things we had a mood set you know <laughs> we watched it by the Christmas tree we had the lights out the flickering of stuff because um, another thing that I was really thinking about I was like okay so 1977 Star Wars comes out yeah and then uh, 79 oh no it's 78 
Superman. So yeah, but Star Wars. I mean, Superman. Yes, definitely, obviously. But you don't hear about the kind of impact. To me, like when you hear about the kind of impact that Star Wars made when it came out, with the uh, and then the merchandising oh, that yeah. Lucas did and all that saying. stuff. Like there's, so it was a whole other world prior. It was that all, which I'm always talking about. It was the Irwin Allen. It was uh, Six Million Dollar Man. It was, and then when Super Star Wars comes out, everyone goes to the space. It's yeah. like, and then everything just goes literally galactic. You and know, I, but I just feel like the hype and the impact of Batman. Like I feel like for people that are ten years older than us. That's what they got. Yeah. Like, in 70s. Like, it was yeah. like, you, we've said this on the show before, like, Batman 89 for Dion and I is, like, real benchmark. Like, there, we think, like, I think of life, like, bef- was that before Batman or after Batman? Yeah. But I'm BC trying to, or AC. <laughs> Batman BC 89 or <laughs> but, Batman AD? But I'm, but I'm marking things in yeah. my life. Oh, like, I went this. I did this. Well, how old was I? Okay. That, well, that was before Batman. What year was Batman? Okay. <laughs> Um, and I imagine that people who grew up where the, when they were like 10, 11, when Star Wars came out, must have felt the same way. But I can't think. I mean, obviously, I aged, so maybe a movie wouldn't have had the same kind of impact on me that Batman came out. But I can't think of a movie since Batman that's had that kind of well, hype Would you be impact. like Avatar? Even though that wasn't a, you know, our genre. I mean, I liked it just fine. But maybe. I mean, I don't, may, but, maybe. Or I also don't think, you know, I think the difference between Star Wars and... Or even the Star Wars movies. And lately. Batman and something like Avatar is like whether... Like ba- Star Wars and Batman are for kids of all ages. Sure. But they were really geared towards children. Yeah. Whereas Avatar really wasn't. It was yeah. It was just more of that same kind of a. But I guess there was a huge hype. I mean, it, it ushered in or the even whole Terminator th- Two. Yeah, but that was just that was only a couple years later. Yeah, yeah. When that and Jurassic Park were really there, but but Jurassic. but I guess you mean for like if you take into consideration like for, all if the if you think of like franchising for, and for people that are in their twenties or younger or thirty now. I'm trying to think of what movie would have been there. Lord of the Rings or a Harry yeah, Potter? Yeah, I guess maybe the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter movies. Like I said, I was older, so it's hard for me to put in context. Sure. Or even, I, I don't know, I, it, it's a poor example, but maybe for even younger people, are the Hunger Games big? You know? No, but I mean, those are just really popular movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I this know. also has to be defined. I don't know if they defined. were anticipated. Yeah. Harry Potter uh, might have been anticipated. Lord of the Rings was anticipated. Yeah, but Lord of the Rings was also anticipated by people... In the know, yeah. Where well, Batman, pe- well, people spoke to, like of all of all generations. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, Batman too, because Batman. But there was so much hype for I'm Batman. Walking, where, I'm, I'm walking around in circles here, where people didn't think. Uh, you know, remember the, we talked about this: the hype up to Keaton. Why is this comedic actor who's Mr. Mom and Beetlejuice? What's this bullshit he's playing? You know, Nicholson being in there, and then the hype, and then seeing it that you know, and that now is you know kind of viewed as camp. Well, yeah, I, mean, I can see why, though. I mean, yeah, but it, that's that's because it's through Tim Burton's lens, yeah, which is very specific, sure. And there is an element of camp, sure, in especially Tim Burton's stuff up until then and immediately after, like, like being self-aware almost. Yeah, well, you know, like even we like, did Pee Wee's like, Herman this year, remember? Yeah, well, Pee Wee <laughs> was this year. We did Pee Wee this year. Um, that's another Burton movie we did this year. Yeah. 
But like Edward Scissorhands, for instance, which he does sure. between Batman and Batman Returns, there's a very definite, in, uh, intentional, yeah, play on like this idea of like suburban camp, yeah, the fifties, yeah, yeah, like yeah. playing into that. Years. He yeah, has sure. a very specific lens, sure. and it's a playful lens, yeah. even though he's viewing dark material, dark uh, uh, content. But it's through his lens, through his like Vincent, yeah, Disney. So it gets yeah, it gets gets the skewed thing, and I think when something is really specific and iconic, that it you know that it makes an impact on its on the time that it comes out when it makes that big of a splash. It's hard not to look back at it now and look back at it and say it's a it's like you know aged. A certain way, you know, or, or it's of its time, or it's campy because because it defined nineteen eighty nine yeah. and ninety two. You sure. know what I mean? <laughs> and also, I don't think you can you can't take a Nolan movie, Batman Begins, and make it in eighty nine because I don't think audiences would accept. Even if Tim Burton wanted to go balls out and make a Charlie Bronson movie and put Charlie Bronson as Batman, I don't think the studios would have let him. So you couldn't have had the the realism or the brutality well, of a, mo- a modern, because it's, I think since reality TV, digital age, we've kind of turned into people like stuff being more real and realistic. Well, what do you get when you try to do that? Away from the stylization of the 80s and 90s. And I don't need, and I don't mean this in a negative connotation or a knock against either one of these movies, the Nolan movies or what I'm going to say now, which is I think if you, when you take something like trying to do Batman like Nolan did it, in 1989, you get the, the the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie. Yeah, which is a failure, and people don't know. In mo- most people's eyes, then, yeah, I think it's come around, and people have affection for it now. Um, and I, we certainly really enjoyed it when we did it on the show five years ago, five yeah. and a half years ago, and neither one of us had seen it. Yeah, a decade. <laughs> sure, it's now my favorite Punisher. Iteration. You know, like we when we watched it, we were. I remember we were both like, you know what? It was really good. It was, and it was, you know, all that, you know, predicting of the, the flawed, the, yeah, but sure. good, yeah, you I know, mean, and we, we, yeah. But it was trying to take the Punisher, which is, you know, in some ways, a Batman esque Marvel character, and that he's not a superhero. He relies on technology. You know, obviously his one man. His yeah, he's a loner. I mean, obviously his uh, his moral ground is you know is different, <laughs> more closer to 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 Bob Kane's nineteen thirty nine Batman, which you see in this movie. Yeah, you know, but it was taking it and trying to place it in a more realistic and be serious world. Of course, it has like that canon esque. Yeah. Action, and you know, it, ninjas, and, and shit. it has the eighties. <laughs> the, the problem with eighties action—not the problem, but the the, the things that define eighties action, action movies. Yeah, movies. so you can look at that immediately and write it off as a campy movie. But that's just tropes that were just baggaged it because of the eighties. So you're right, I think. But you know, uh, I hate having to, to to defend this movie or Batman and say like, well, these are you have to understand what's going on here. And and I said in the first Batman cast that I don't think Tim Burton could make nowadays make that like this is when i love tim burton you know and, and i certainly loved him as a child growing up and to me he kind of felt he kind of like tripped and rolled down the hill 
of Tim Burton land, you know, so like a lot of his recent movies are kind of him just going down worm or rabbit holes of what he likes, yeah. which isn't a bad thing because you see every director do it, you know. Sure. Scorsese's doing that now, you know, as of this recording with The Irishman. So, but it's, for me, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was a huge movie for me. Be- Beetlejuice was a huge movie for me. Uh, I had seen Frank and Weenie up at that point because my video store or my library had Frank and Weenie, the short movie he did. Yeah. And then by the time Batman comes out and then Batman Returns and even Edward Scissorhands, I was loving that style because to me it was new and, you know, and then up until probably either Batman Returns or, what is it, is Mars Attacks? Or Ed Wood is good, but that doesn't have the style like this. Maybe Mars Attacks. You know, that's when after that he kind of, you know, he, he has so much in his hands he drops everything and it's like, but wow. But even Ed Wood is got that thing yeah you know and but it's totally intentional i sure. mean the performances are campy yeah and over the time uh, landau won an oscar for for playing um um you know uh Bela in that my point is only like that campiness that people might complain about batman it's it's in his whole co- it's present it's, in his whole catalog. yeah it's the way tim burton yeah. is and, and it I also mean, it, lends- it's not so much like uh, he's treating the the character of batman in some kind of campy, jokey manner. It's just that that's the way that Tim Burton movies are. It's that, like, weird line, straddling that line of, like, tongue-in-cheek and beautiful visuals combined with just, like, that weird, like, prism that you view, that he views things through. Yeah. I mean, he's an auteur. Yeah. I mean, I mean he's never been my favorite director. Um, but it's hard to deny that when you see a Tim Burton movie that it's a, not a Tim Burton movie, you know what I mean? Especially like, <laughs> when you got it backed up with the Danny Elfman music, you know, yeah. hitting the floor. And um, Yeah, it's it's just, it's something, and then especially with the baggage of Batman coming to 89 and you having to redefine it all, which was sort of happening in the comic books, but having to be like taking that, um, uh, what's his face, who, who did uh, Frank Miller stuff yeah. and then taking the Dark Knight and, and, and then the Killing Joke and injecting that into Batman, it's, it, it redefined what you could do as a super, with a superhero film. And it basically revolutionized... Because we said that when Superman came out, they were trying to get Batman and Dick Tracy made for 10 years. And finally, they got Batman out by 89, and then Dick Tracy comes out in 1990, and then that starts that... You know, By that time, you get the Punisher, you get the Captain America that we did on this show that didn't get released theatrically. You get the Fantastic Four movie, which we did on this show, which ne- didn't ne- even get released. <laughs> Never got released. Uh, uh, what other? I'm trying to think. You get Rocketeer. Rocketeer. You get the Phantom. You get you the get a, Shadow. You get the Flash television series. You get the Fla- which is hugely influential uh, as well. Which we did. Resonates today. We did that on this show, the pilot we of the did Flash. The pilot Our lowest them. rated <laughs> cast. The pilot, the Flash TV show pilot. Um, you know, the Flash... That television show still resonates. It's it's there's it's there's stuff that's running through the new Flash series on CW, and right now as we record this episode, we're slap dab in the middle of like the infi- the Crisis Infinite er- uh, Universe or Infinite Earth uh, sure. crossover, and that that plays a huge part in uh in in that this like five part the original series yeah wow um, you know connected. not like a not in terms of like throughout the whole thing sure but there's a very pivotal moment where that that show plays a very so they actually part. they actually connect the two worlds 
yeah. from the old show. It's not like it's not forgotten I, about, you know? And I want to say they did it in previous That's episodes, really cool. too, but it's definitely specific. Yeah. So, the, so at the, the area, had all these sh- movies, and then suddenly the movie stumbled a little bit. And then in the 90s, they, they were worried about can superhero movies actually do the money that Batman and Batman Returns did. And, and you know, Dick Tracy did well. And then that was the big hoopla by the late 90s when X-Men came out. Remember, if X-Men doesn't do good, yeah. they weren't going to make superhero movies ever again. Yeah. It was, it was like Blade came out and it was like, okay, well, maybe there's something yeah. here. Blade did, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, maybe there's something in these, in these superhero yeah. waters that we can bottle. And sell, and then it was like, okay, we'll do X-Men, and if X-Men flops, then we know. Yeah, and X-Men was a hit, and then after that, you got, they got Spider-Man, they did the Daredevil, they did Fantastic Four, and then there you go, and then we're off to, we're off to the, uh, the Iron Man redefining it now, that the era we're in now. Uh, but it all goes back to this, and it's just like, the you know, it's, uh, I hadn't seen Batman Returns, and it's full, I don't know, it's quite a while. Long, it's been a long time for me, too. But it is interesting when you're, you're talking about, like, the the talk about like batman forever or batman and robin like the the batman movies that come after yeah batman returns which There's, i think helped put a, a, a open a, a foot in the grave for the superhero movies in the 90s yeah you it's know? just it's interesting because like it seems like at that point there's there was like a crossroads it was like one you know there was the idea that burton could have done another one and we could talk about that more later because it's kind of connected to batman returns but then there's like this crossroads where it could have taken that what kind of like campiness that Bat- Burton's movies had, which was subtle, and it could go more campy, yeah. which is way, where it went. Yeah. The overcorrection. Yeah. Or it could have like went more, more serious. Yeah. And it's just un- like, and unfortunately, and I'm, and I don't, you know, I, I don't mean to knock anybody who's, I'm sure, I'm sure the, the uh, Schumacher movies have their fans. Sure. I liked Forever when it came out. I remember going to see that. And I don't necessarily dislike them. And I don't... Kiss from a Rose. <laughs> what is it? Kill me, thrill me, thrill me, kiss me, thrill me, kill me. That U2 song. And I probably, you know, I probably am more forgiving to them than a lot of people that are really discouraging of them. Sure. Um, to me, I, you know, they're fine. I don't, I don't like, dislike them at all, actually. I mean, they're not my favorites. But it just seems like... It could have gone one or two, one of, one of two ways, and unfortunately for, I think, for the audiences of the '90s, it didn't go a more serious route, or else we could have had like a more of a rocketeer esque kind of yeah, Batman. Yeah, it could have jumps. It could have the big wave of superhero movies could have started earlier. Yeah, had it didn't go down this campier way you would have closer got, more akin to the batman 66 yeah, you would have got series. more you probably would have got that superman nick cage movie we might have got another rocketeer yeah you might have got even like a um uh that's that 90s james cameron spider-man movie you know like all this stuff could have started a lot earlier and we could have had a lot of other iterations of it had it not just i think it, I, it probably was the schumacher movies probably just you know, put the nail in the coffin because people were like, this is too crazy. You know, by that time when you're getting the serious movies of the 90s. But whatever today's audience is, whatever audience looks back at the Tim Burton movies uh, and doesn't like them for whatever reason, the Tim Burton movies gave us, in my opinion, the best, uh, like, 
version of Batman not on, in print, which is the animated series. Yeah. And to me, like, Batman does ne- will, do- has never and probably will never be better than that series. Yeah. <laughs> and if it wasn't for Tim Burton's movies, it, we wouldn't have gotten that. In fact, like, animated series kind of came out in conjunction yeah, with, with, with returns. returns. With the music and everything. It was almost like the... It was like they were trying to... the TV, know, It's like doing a TV show. It's like the series, you know, yeah. like, as it was. You know, it wasn't really connected. There's an interesting like stuff about that series where early on they were kind of told by Warner Brothers that they had to make Penguin look like Danny DeVito's Penguin a little bit. And he kind of looks like, I was going to say, Paul Williams voices him, who we bring up a lot on the show, and you do have him kind of with the nose and the long hair, yeah. you know. But they, but they they didn't want to go that route, actually, from, from what I understand. They actually wanted to make him more like he was in the comics, but they Warner Brothers was like, no, like we can't have kids be like, wait. <laughs> like the toys, which we could talk like I about. Thought, yeah. Penguin looks like this, not this. So later on, they do actually make the switch, and Penguin starts to look more like the television show. But in those early, that first season or so. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, whether you like the, the, the Tim Burton movies or not, like, if it wasn't for them, you would have. And, you know, you get the animated series, which we talked about on that animated series episode. That actually gave made stuff that's canon. You got Harley Quinn out of that series. You got, uh, I think, now what, what is canon of um, Mr. Freeze's backstory. You know, like, they flesh oh, out yeah, a lot of stuff. Heart of Glass. Yeah, yeah. They, they, fl- they f- you know, were able to expand a lot or take out of the comic book. And, you know, I don't remember offhand uh, of the series if there's any direct references to the two Tim Burton movies. I don't. Aside from the music, the, you know, the show. I don't, Walker, re- I don't, Elf, I don't remember either, but yeah. I don't suspect that there really is other than. I mean, the Batmobile looks closer to the, the, to the Anton first Batmobile than it does to, like, the Schumachers or any other iteration. And Gotham City looks more and, like. Yeah, and his, his, co- and yeah, his set kind design. Of, like, weird, timeless. Art Deco. Art Deco. You know, again, setting it. That was the, the brilliant thing I loved about that show was also its style, where they had cell phones and modern technology, but it seems like, which we might have talked about in the Batman 89 series or sh- uh, episode, where it seems like at some point back in history, like the time went left. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And everyone was <laughs> alternate reality. Yeah, and we stuck in that world of. 40s Art Deco had like World War II never started, you know, and yeah, then everything kept going. Air, the police are still using airships. Yeah, and blimps and you know, zeppelins and stuff. And, and uh, all, I mean, all that's fascinating. You know, the book I'm writing right now has all that shit in it, you know, but it's like I, all that stuff is amazing, to, you know, to, to have it have that. And that's also going back to the last cast was like thinking of uh, Batman 89 was almost an homage to the Warner Brother gangster movies. You know, you yeah. can... Even this movie, if you put them black and white, they look, you know, very much of the era of like, you know, the, even the suits. It's all that Art Deco, very much, you know, uh, which I, you know, I love all that. You know, I think that I, so, you know, then that again to reiterate, that's like just my biggest thing with the Nolan movies is just that it just doesn't have that that feel of character, you know, um, which these movies have for me. Which I guess is like is like what is it a, a giveaway or like a trade off? Well, there's I mean there's I mean there's no doubt about it. I mean if if one thing Tim Burton can do, it's like <laughs> give a motherfucker some character, <laughs> you know, like set a mood, create a world and an atmosphere. Sure, that's very specific and yeah. unique, and in some ways, dare I say, in some ways, even though you know, I like I said, I'm not the I'm not the biggest Tim Burton fan either, but like he was kind of the perfect person to do it in 1989. Yeah, 
Like, I don't think it would have. I don't. I can't think of anybody that would have done it and had that much of an impact. Well, you needed someone with there a was sense something, of style. It was something about yeah, exactly. There was something about like the whole world. You were transported. I mean, I can't overestimate. I can't over like exaggerate the fact that like or or uh, state that like I will probably never be as excited as I was like that Thursday night at midnight. Yeah, going to see Batman, and you're sitting there. <laughs> or watching. even I remember seeing the preview at the before. Sure, the movie. In the first time up. seeing the 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 trailer for Batman, I, like the I first look, look at Batman or the first look at the Joker. And he comes crashing through the the sky. Yeah, <laughs> or he pulls the guy in the in the at, at the Axis Chemical Plant and hangs him, and then Vicky Vale. And there's not even music, right? It's just it's just it's just them. <laughs> they just put together like a sizzle I mean, reel. I, 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 I've long to be that excited about anything even the beginning when the lights went down and then you have that opening credits and then you're going through that maze that you end up coming out of it's the bat symbol you're like dun, 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 you know uh and then just the fr- gotham city that that wide shot of the matte painting of just you're you're like you said you're in a count you're transported away yeah you're in a movie it's and it's amazing it's yes you know it's just it just does so much and so, then and this is a continuation of that and then we're, we'll have to wait three years yeah um, to get another one. Well, he comes out. Batman comes out. Does really, really well. I mean, it does a, a fuckload of money. It almost does like I think it's in today's dollars. It was like it did like almost four hundred fifty million. I think in uh, eighty nine estimate. And then if you translate that in today's dollars, it might be near eight hundred. You know, uh, million dollars. So they wanted to do a sequel quickly. But then Burton's like, well, I don't want to come back and do a sequel. I, I'm not a sequel kind of guy. What are you going to bring back to the to the to the plate that will entice me to come yeah, back and like do I already it. did it. Yeah, and that was what Michael Keaton said, too. I'm with this guy. He's like, I did it already. What are you going to, you know, we'll do like, well, we'll pay you a crap load more money, Michael Keaton. He's like, okay. <laughs> I like that. You, you, you <laughs> got my interest. Why did you tell me that in the first <laughs> place? You know, and they brought t- Tim Burton in, so they start talking to Tim Burton, and they have uh, Sam Hamm, who uh, wrote the script for the first movie, correct? I believe so, yes. Yeah, um, he he gives a script out and then the idea was that they wanted to introduce in this penguin and catwoman and then they were also toying with the idea of either two-face or setting two-face up for a third movie which we bring oh good old billy d in billy d i always thought that was the weirdest thing when i watched batman it's like oh that's billy d williams you know <laughs> but he's only like in two scenes you know yeah. like there's a lot of things except ghosts and goblins you know it's like and then that's not a denial that's not a denial and then he kind of falls away. I'm like, oh, what happened to, 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 to Billy D? And then he's not in the <coughs> second movie. And Billy D had signed on for that small role in the first movie, knowing that he had been in his contract, he, was, he would be in the sequel. And he's Harvey Dent, so he'd eventually be Two-Face. So you have all this. And then they were even talking about introducing a Robin character into the second one. So um, Burton gets it. And then they, what do they say to Burton? We'll also give you a crap load of artistic control. And but, I think that was basically their big selling point to Burton because Burton was like why do I want to come back and do it he had just he, he left to, and did Edward Scissorhands and then which is a very successful at the time artsy movie right you know yeah and it's many people's to this day favorite yeah. oh I love Burton it yeah yeah movie. sure um, might be Vincent Price's last uh, performance in a film as well and I think the big selling point for Burton was they're like well what if like forget Batman what if you just do it as a Tim Burton what if we make a Tim Burton movie yeah, you know, and meaning like, do whatever you want. 
within reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but like, you know, we, and so I think the idea of like, okay, well, like if I really am not restricted to like fully to like canon or to, you know, what merchandise is going to have to deliver or what audience I'm making this for, if you're really going to let me do whatever I want to do, like, okay, that's something. And I think that's what brings them back. And, um, in the first movie, just getting the first movie done was just enough. And I think the uh, studio really underestimated the idea of merchandising. Nicholson had an idea with it because I think that was one of Nicholson's caveats. Nicholson said, well, I want X amount of dollars. I want to be able to watch the Lakers when I want. And I want to be able to have a piece of the merchandising. And I think he said that to DeVito, too. I might be mistaken, but I think he DeVito did that for this Thing too. Also had a, I don't remember if it was the merchandising. I always th- remember. I mean, we could have. Oh, put, profits maybe. Yeah, something a piece of the film itself. Yeah, you know, um, like a percentage and the and the, po- the points in the movie. So when by the time the second one comes out, they Warner Brothers have got the idea of merchandising, and then the, I guess the word franchise starts being thrown around, and this can be a new movie. So when you have uh, Kenner who was making all the toys in the world when we were little. They had Star Wars. They had all the, you know, they had everything from Star Wars on, I think. You know, and I don't mean all the toys in the world, but Kenner had a lot of toys. Yeah, they were well, doing Marvel. They I think they had DC. Well, they didn't have Hasbro. I mean, no. Hasbro had... G.I. Prob- Joe and Transformers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like probably but, the biggest toys of our generation. But the other one, well, Star Wars, and, you know, the yeah, other ones but, were... you know, that was more like my older brother's sure. toys. Than- but Kenner had a crap load of stuff. But then I don't know what happens, but if for some reason you have, uh, I think it's Toy Biz is able to get the rights to the Batman stuff. And so, from Kenner, for whatever reason, so when, when this movie, when Batman 89 comes out, the Batman figures on Batman 89 are toy biz. So, I don't know what happened with Batman and Joker, but they're basically taking the, like, uh, Joker look of almost Neil Adams of the 80s and 70s and they put that out as the figure yeah you know painted to look like jack nicholson and then they put the, even the batman and they you know they you know kind of uh update it and they put like that awesome you know thing in his belt where it's yeah. you know he can hang you know so and then they do bob the goon and then everything else is pretty much batman 89 exclusive they do the batmobile they do a couple Batmobiles. They do uh, the Bat Wing. They might even do a Bat uh, motorcycle. They have the Bat Cave. They do the uh, sewer playset. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's teenage. Teenage, oh, damn, you're wow. silly son of a bitch. So then, by the time you get to Batman Returns, Kenner gets the license back. Yeah. Well, good to, since you're talking about the Batman, I just remember somebody must have given it to me because they knew I loved it, and I. But I had, and I think when we did Batman, or maybe at some point I brought in a pamphlet, a Batman pamphlet. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you could buy merchandise. Sure. That, I remember getting that pamphlet at the premiere. Was that you? you yeah, you brought that in. And it's I brought like, it in. I think I had like two of them. Yeah, I you gave get, me one, right? I might have given it to you. I don't know. When, when we saw it opening night, well, my dad, me, and my friend Martin, they were handing out that pamphlet. And it, what, you open it up, and you'd see like... And the girl is famous, isn't it? Modeling. It was, it was Heather Lagenkamp from yeah. a Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> and so she's modeling. To my recollection. She's modeling an outfit. You got Bob Kane wearing an awesome like Warner Brothers jacket. Uh, you have the toys. And then I remember if you turn the back, it's like Lethal Weapon 2 is coming out and like young Frankenstein. Young, young, um, what's his face? Oh, Einstein. Einstein, yeah. It was on the back. So they were really pushing the, the marketing. And then the, the other thing since we're on 
the, the merch was the shirts. Yeah. All summer long, 1989, every week I was taking my mom to Bradley's or Caldor's, calling them up like, I, do you have in the freaking Batman? Everybody I know has got a Batman shirt. I want myself a freaking Batman shirt. And I'm getting some shitty Batman shirt, which wasn't awesome. But I remember that was the big thing, too, is you wanted Batman. People were getting Batman freaking, you know, uh, shaved into the side of their heads. <laughs> you know, uh, African Americans had high lows, and in the back you had the freaking Batman symbol. You know, had even you know white kids doing it too. So by the time Batman Returns, but comes my out, point was about the pamphlet. Yeah, is either in that pamphlet or at some point I got a catalog that I think a friend of mine gave me. Like I didn't get it in the mail, but they were advertising the toy, the figures, and the Batman figure in it. It must have been like they didn't create the figures yet. Because it was, they took the Batman from like the superpowers DC Universe Kenner figures sure, from the yeah, 80s. Yeah. yeah. We had, and you'd like squeeze their legs and their arms would move, and they had Batman and Superman and all those guys. Yeah. And it was, looked like they just painted that black. Well, that's what they did, yeah. Because that, because the figure that came out wasn't like that. I mean, it didn't look like that, but the figures in the catalog. Because they were, they were like the prototypes. <laughs> they looked exactly like those Kenner um, DC figures. I, my cousin had used to get in the mail the Warner Brothers catalogs. Yeah. And I used to then look at it, get a copy, and I'd bring it home, and it was like the merch Warner Brothers had. And for a couple of years, they were doing that. So you can buy, like, you know, what you're saying. You can buy, like, the jacket or whatever, you know. Yeah, so I remember yeah. those catalogs had stuff. There ended up being four different Batman heads to those Batman figures. There was, like, a puffy round one. Then they slimmed it down and tried to make it a little more aerodynamic. And there was two other. So there's a total of four that came out with the Batman 89. The Batmobile for Batman 89... Uh, kind of annoyed me because it was an amazing Batmobile that even made a sound and then came with even the shields, but it had no top. So I made my own top out of like cardboard, so it yeah, had like yeah. a, a you know like a roof. Uh, but then they corrected that with Batman Returns. But Kenner gets the the license back uh, for Batman Returns, and then you get the more eccentric toys that look like there's there's a Michael Keaton one where you could take his cowl off. For Batman Returns, yeah, and it's one of the mo- it's like the most amazing likeness of Michael Keaton and on all the figures, and a lot of the stuff looks like <laughs> all the Michael Keaton figures <laughs> that you, you may have the, the clean and sober <laughs> Michael Keaton, the Dream Team Michael Keaton, you know, all those years, the uh, the uh, John, what's his face Johnny Dangerously Michael Keaton figure, the Night Shift Michael Keaton. This was the most realistic looking character, except they said we can get to it later about Penguin. They had the, they kept Penguin. They ended up using the uh, the toy biz or whatever you call it, the, the, the Kenner, because they thought it would be too dark. The penguin they were designing than to be in toys, they thought it would be too dark for kids. So they then kept the original 80s uh, super, you know, with him with the top hat. They just painted him black yeah. and gave him like maybe like a pot belly or something like that. Or maybe he already had a pot belly, yeah. you know. But those, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but the Kenner figures for Batman Returns were amazing with the Batmobile looked there was a couple Batmobiles looked phenomenal there was one you can which I had you hit the button and the sides come off and you have like the bat uh, the, missile the missile thing you yeah. know um, so they got that worked out with Kenner but you get into Batman Returns and uh, another thing was they were talking about in the, I think the first Sam Ham script was um, they were going to kind of have callbacks to the first movie they were going to have like parts of the bat wing were being sold like uh you know in stores people can buy it's like getting parts of like elvis's cadillac you know they it's that and yeah. the, that's in the script there's a vicky vales back in it and i think they were thinking of maybe killing her off near the end of the movie they had elements of jack napier more stuff on the news was coming about 
coming out about who he was, but they dropped all that when Keaton's like, no, I don't want it to be a direct sequel. I want it to be in the world, and it obviously happened, but, um, you know, we're going to try to be a little distant. And that's why I couldn't find in any of the research why they said it at Christmas time, which I think is brilliant. They just said, hey, let's just set it at Christmas, where they could have said, we wanted to set it at Christmas because blah, 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 blah. But it adds such a level, I think, of awesomeness, which you see even in the cartoon. You see when it's cold, you know, especially with the Mr. Freeze or the snow, you know. Well, I think, you know, partially it's probably just the fact that, you know, the penguin, you think of Arctic, cold. It it kind of suits itself. I mean, you could just do it with the snow, but maybe just like giving it that Christmas. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, tent pole of like, this is the time of year it is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I really thought about it. Yeah. I'll have to give that some thoughts. <laughs> I'll come back to you. <laughs> uh, so you get, they set it at Christmas, and then I think uh, Burton ends up bringing in, he likes the writer, um, Daniel Waters, who had done Heathers, and he has him come in when Burton agrees to do the movie. Uh, Keaton agrees to come back for like $10 million because Keaton was doing like a real estate deal and wanted the money. Yeah. So he comes in also asking for some creative control because he and Michael Keaton have uh, – he, he, Michael Keaton and, and Burton have some meetings. So uh, Burton brings in Daniel Waters to do another It's also hit at the script. It's also partially that I think that he liked uh, Heathers, but also by that point he was working with a producer named Denise DeNovi mm-hmm. who had produced Edward Scissorhands. And she also produced Heather's. So this, the guy it was, was a connection directly. There's got to be some kind of connection. She goes on to produce Nightmare Before Christmas. And then later, Cabin Boy. <laughs> we didn't we were just talking about Cabin Boy with Chris Elliott not too long ago? And uh, Daniel Would Waters. Would you like to buy a monkey? Daniel, Weathers, uh, Daniel Waters did Heather's, but he also did The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Wow. Hudson Hawk. Wow. R.I.P. Danny Aiello, who just passed away. And Demolition Man. Wow. That was a huge movie for our time. Very satiristic. I wonder how that holds up nowadays. <laughs> Be a good movie for the podcast. Um, so he comes in and he does a little, he does a revamp of the script. He kind of, uh, I think, fleshes out the idea of what Penguin's going to be wanting to do. He kind of has the idea, I think, of what having Penguin run for mayor. Yeah, he might have taken he might because they also brought in someone else. Yeah, that's at the later end. on. But yeah, I think he did the Penguin running for mayor. He was the one that eventually put like officially took Robin out as an idea because he was like, "There's just too many characters the way it is." Then they had signed Marlon Wayans at this point, uh, and he was going to be somebody I, who I don't know if it was going to be set up until the next movie, and then again the third movie would have it premiere. But maybe the idea was that. Uh, Marlon Wayans was going to be like a mechanic and he was going to have like an R on his mechanic jet, you know? There's a couple of, there's a lot of stories and it's the web. And then he drives the Batmobile, you know? Because there's also a lot of stuff if you look on Wikipedia and whatnot. There's a lot of stuff about like alternate casting and... Oh, there's a ton of alternate casting. And I don't, I, I don't know if I buy a lot of it, to be honest with you. It's tough to know online what's true and what's You're not. You're talking about like how the people that they were entertaining is Penguin? They have the whole phone book there. Yeah, but just there's a lot of stuff. Because you also, when you watch documentaries and you watch interviews and you read interviews, like none of that stuff gets mentioned. 
Yeah. So <laughs> where are they getting their ideas from? You wonder, like, well, where are they getting this idea that like Dean Martin was, was well, in the running for, you know what for like Max Schreck or Penguin or something? Dean Martin. What's interesting about that is because I, they also have uh, Sophia Loren as, or not Sophia Loren, who, uh, the other of uh, uh, what's her face, who uh, from Other Drugs and Speed. Uh, Raquel Welsh. Yeah. She's in the running to play Catwoman. And, and when you first think about like what age she is at the time, you're like, what? That's a ludicrous idea. But I wonder initially if you look at how they cast Nicholson as the Joker, maybe their initial thoughts were we will cast contemporaries a little older to play those other characters. You could, I, I could see in a, in, with that context having Ra- Raquel Welsh come in to be a real sexy Catwoman who's by that time, what, in her 40s or 50s? Because how old is Nicholson? Nicholson's in his 50s at that time. So uh, as crazy as Dean Martin, you'd think the... I mean, there was some cra- a lot of crazy... I mean, they were even... A, a, a real serious thing they were talking about is having Burgess Meredith cameo as his father at the beginning. And they were going to have him do that until he was just too ill to, to do it. And then he ends up passing away some years later. Yeah, I mean, And was, you think he about... He was really old. Yeah, he was old. Yeah, because he we did him in State of Grace. That's around that year. That's 1990. And he was, you know, so he's like an elderly man fathering this child. Maybe that would have been a different kind of take on it. Yeah. Uh, dressing him up or maybe trying to look, make him look younger. So I wonder if some of that exact crazy stuff is because they were just... You know, I can see with the women, you know, they're talking about Madonna or, uh, you know, Meryl Streep, you know, all these people, you know, uh, Jennifer Beals. Um, there's a notorious story with uh, what's her face? Sean um, Young. Sean Young, which I remember when this movie was shooting, seeing like Entertainment Tonight or whatever, her doing those crazy interviews where I remember seeing an episode of Inside Edition or Entertainment Tonight or whatever it was where they caught up like we our cameras caught up with her and she was outside the Warner Brothers lot like she, she was on the street trying yeah. to get in and she'd been she'd either scaled the wall and had been ejected or was thinking of doing it and they caught her doing it but she's dressed up as the catwoman outfit saying i deserve i'm going to and then her idea was that she was going to go there in character and then Tim Burton be like yes because if you all remember from our first podcast on Batman 89, she was cast in the Vicky Vale role. Yeah. And she was training on horseback for a scene that ends up getting deleted in the Batman movie where she was then thrown off the horse and she broke her shoulder. Something like that. She her broke something. Her shoulder. And it, then because of that, she couldn't be in the movie. And then like on a Friday, they cast Kim Basinger to come to England for like Monday to start shooting. So poor Sean Young. It's the ballad of Sean Young I'm telling somebody to write. Where it's like, <laughs> you know, she was cast and she was she was only she wasn't like she was fucking around on the weekend with her bro. Yeah. Or or Bo, I mean. Yeah. She's actually doing you know, she's trying to get training to, to, to work on the movie, hurts herself, is not able to do the movie, and they don't even use that scene. If that ends up supposed to be eating the scene where Alfred's talking about it. And then I had to, you know, I had to have a sprained ankle, and that's the last time I gave Bruce a riding lesson. That was supposed to be that scene there. So poor Sean Young. So I think she comes back thinking, well, you yes. know, he owes me. He, the motherfucker owes me something. But all this is after the fact that they had originally cast the part. To Annette Benning. To Annette Benning, But then she got pregnant. Which was, I guess was, oh, you know, unexpected. Her and, uh, at that point, I guess it was Madonna was no longer with Warren Beatty. And uh, he hooks up with Annette Benning, who I think, they're, are they still together to this day? They might be. Um, and... She, I guess it was by accident because she called Tim Burton. So she's, so she's cast, and the story Michelle Pfeiffer says is Michelle Pfeiffer heard about it, loved it, wanted to go out for it. She had supposedly auditioned for Vicky Vale, 
and didn't get it, of course. But she thought that would be a great part. And then before she was able to look into it, Annette Benning had been cast. And she's like, hell. But then Annette Benning uh, ends up being pregnant, calls Tim Burton, and, and they're already in production or pre-production. So they had to find somebody else. And then that's then there's, like, to finish out the Sean Young story, there's evidently a story where a producer and Michael Keaton walk into the office and she's hiding in the office, evidently jumps over a couch and rolls and comes up in the Catwoman outfit and says, you know, scares the hell out of him. They're like, wow, well, okay, you know, and Tim Burton talks about, yes, I've heard about that story. I wasn't there, but I heard it was, a, <laughs> you know, so they actually escort her off and they end up hiring. I mean, I understand her thought process. I do too. I mean, it's just terrible. It's like the character of Catwoman is very aggressive. Yeah, and they didn't feel out. I mean, at the time, you're still working off the Eartha Kit, Lee Merriweather, uh, what's her face years so that's why she's going to be going a little more like meow you know like meow baby where yeah, yeah. Th- this kind of redefined the role meow baby that's a <laughs> listen there's an episode <laughs> with one of the best lines in history there's an episode of Kojak where at the end of it they need to get into the guys they're like they got the SWAT team there and they want to get into the place and it's a real tension you it's a nail biter and everyone's on the stairs and they don't know what to do and the the, the criminals are inside the apartment doing something so Stavros who in real life is Kojak's uh, Telly Savas's brother he goes up to the door and they're like what's, what's he doing and he starts he starts scratching the door you know you start hearing like and he starts going, meow, and then the people inside, what the, what the, and they go and they open the door and Saval's there, he goes, meow, baby. <laughs> and it's like, you're like, oh my God, and they get him. So I always say that now, I always hear meow, baby. Um, what the hell did we even say? Uh, so you get Catwoman, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's in this part where you have Waters, the writer, he's the one that interjects the idea of having uh, Catwoman a little more nuanced in the sense of a little not not so much being a sex symbol, but being like an em- being becoming empowered yeah. and the backstory of her becoming Catwoman, as opposed to where you see. I'm not too well on the the book of Catwoman, the comic, or even the animated series, but you know this one you give the origin of her having a traumatic incident that makes her become Catwoman. Yeah, or in the other also ones, I feel not like like a thief. Yeah, she's yeah. Where she's a cat burglar in the other in her other canon. She's a hot woman who doubles as a cat burglar, goes and steals jewels and diamonds, and that's her shtick. Where in this one, it's like it's a little more head trauma. She becomes like a Batman, yeah. you know. Except they're they're on the same kind of trajectory. Except they're just different. They're opposites. Yeah. So I think Daniels interjects that, and then he interjects like we said some of the the gives the penguin the backstory of it being because another interesting thing of this movie is you do kind of feel for the penguin character. You know, yeah, I mean, well, this is at the end this, of it. You know, all this. I mean, that. Yeah, all now that we're getting stuff into this. You know, is like that was all the stuff I want to talk about. Um, uh, but well, I don't start know. turning the record over. Right? But because I don't know. I think it's but I don't be, know if there's more. Like you know, set up. The I'm movie sure there is. I mean, there's before we start talking about. I think we're going to be all over the place because it's such. It's you know we're we're, we're kind of out of sorts here. I mean they. As you're saying, Daniels, I think, realizes that we're getting too many cooks in the kitchen. And I was thinking in the shower. I do all my critical thinking in the shower because it's where I can be alone. And I was thinking, um, Batman 89 is the only movie that you only have one villain in it, right? Because Batman Returns has two. Batman Forever has a bunch. Batman and Robin has a bunch. Batman Batman Begins has a bunch. Batman The Dark Knight has a bunch. The Dark... The the Dark Knight Rises has a bunch, you know. So like Batman eighty nines, you only have the Joker. Where after that, you have at Who least. Who else is a bad guy in the Heath Ledger one? 
Two Face. Oh, I mean, but yeah, that's not to like. But it's, it's Act like, Four. Yeah, but you still got <laughs> you still got two and Scarecrow at the beginning. Scarecrow's in an opening. He's in the opening scene. They kit. They have to recapture Scarecrow. Um, <laughs> fucking shit. <laughs> but you got Raja Ghoul. You got Scarecrow on that one. You got Catwoman and Bane. You got Catwoman. You got Poison Ivy and Bane and Mister Freeze. You got Two Face and Riddler. Well, I think you know one of the interesting takes on the Batman movies, um, and it's something that sticks through them up until. You could argue maybe not the Christopher Nolan movies, but the Schumacher and the Tim Burton movies is that <clears throat> the Batman movies, for the, in some ways, a lot of them are origin stories for the villains. You know, you find out how the Joker becomes the Joker. You find out how Catwoman becomes the Catwoman. Catwoman, it's, it's, you know, we might not, I guess we even do see how Penguin becomes Penguin. You know, <clears throat> I don't remember Two Face, but we do find out how the Riddler becomes Riddler. We do. There's a flashback there with like, someone throwing acid at him. But it might. But it's not like of the time of the movie. You no. know, it's not present day. Yeah. It's like that's not what the story is. Um, Poison Ivy. I think we learn how. Yeah, Poison we Ivy do. She's, yeah. <clears throat> but so it's interesting that like in these movie in the Batman movies, they're a little bit like some of the Mad Max movies, like Road Warrior or Fury Road, in that like. Those movies aren't really about Mad Max. They're about, like, he's the drifter that comes in to be the hero. <laughs> like, like for a few dollars more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Certainly that's, I think, can definitely be argued in Batman Returns, where it's more Batman's there. There's, there's very yeah, little like, of what's going on with, you know, it seems like he's like Westworld. Batman Returns. He's Return. sitting there until <laughs> he gets turned on, and then he's like, <laughs> And then he goes, you know, he goes and does this thing. He goes, yeah, he's solar activated. Yeah, and then he turns, then he turns off. Draw, you know, it's like you know, they get that. Especially Batman Returns is so little about Batman. Yeah, he's you only see him just waiting, like you said, he's just waiting in the dark, and then you don't see him doing anything. He's not vacuum. I mean, even Alfred's freaking like doing everything. He's just sitting there watching TV. <laughs> he's, like, not, he's not even watching. He's just sitting in the dark. He's sitting in a dark room yeah, brooding. Exactly, just thinking about how <laughs> things could have been. You know, I think up until the Dark Knight, you don't really. That's the ambiguousness, I guess, of the Heath Ledger Joker. He gives five or six different, or not five or six, but two or three different backstories. Yeah, yeah. You know. But I just like it's an interesting take on it because we're so used to, like, we have to see how the hero becomes the hero. And, of course, we get it a little bit in flashback of, in the 89 Batman. But I guess because his origin starts when he's so young. And that, Batman Begins, obviously, tries to tell that story. Yeah. But I love that that like the Tim Burton movies are about the villains, really. Like they're really oh, the yeah. lead characters, and they need to be. You know, you need to have. I think they're so over the top. They're so ridiculous. You need to have them. You need to have some sort of uh, foot in a reality so that you can some feel what happened to them. Even you know Jack Napier, who's a bastard hitman mobster, and that you still kind of see what happens to him to drive him to the insanity. Or in these movies. You know, yeah, and you get, you know, it's you know we see, and of course, like we said, like they weren't, they didn't worry so much about canon so much, in terms of Catwoman and the Penguin, but they do set up these two villains uh, more so than the Joker. It's like these two villains that they were like not given a chance, like they were yeah. wronged, yeah. 
You know, he was like Oswald Cobblepot was just an infant. Yeah. And of course, he was maybe a little screwed up. He's eating the cat or whatever. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he was cast aside. Um, and, yeah. and, and that's what leads him to be what he is. And then with Selena Kyle, you get that she's like this secretary who's mousy and, but has been shit on. Yeah. Probably her whole life. And never has really stood up for Probably herself. Probably from guys just like Max Shrek, or maybe not even as powerful as Max Shrek. But she's a woman who's got this pent up. And when she gets home, it's the only time she can, you know, she almost is, to, like, be yourself. is a person, yeah. you know, and not just a, a piece of furniture or, or, some, or something. And so you do set up th- that these these are villains but even less so in Catwoman's place like is she really even yeah if you don't even I don't even from when I first saw it it's I don't know what it's debatable because she you know we're starting to diagnose her character but it's almost like is she a vigilante is she a villain or is she more because she's kind of into the little sadomasochism you know which is implied I, all, I also for the um, podcast I read the novelization um uh, which was very good, and it has not as much as other some of the other books we've read this year. But there is a little extras here and there, which I can sprinkle on when we're talking about them. Again, not a lot, but um, it, it's 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 really ambiguous with her. Yeah, well, you know, her. I mean, as I watch it now, I don't know if I fully understood it or cared when I was a kid, but as I watch it now as an adult. Like, I find, I think the reason why this one has remained kind of my favorite movie of the of the Batman movies is because of Catwoman and the relationship of Selina Kyle and Bruce Wayne and Catwoman and Batman. And it's like, she's for all intents and purposes killed. Yeah. And then somehow resurrected. And so this, like, rebirth, it's like, you know, this, you know, you hear when people have, they survive cancer traumatic, or yeah. survive something. And then it's like this lease of, of this new lease on life that's like, life's too fucking short. You know, like, it's almost like she has this kind of awakening, but in some kind of weird psychotic but you break also, at the same time. You see people who have uh, traumatic head injuries or people who um, are shot or, you know, they maybe die on the operating table yeah. because of loss of oxygen and they came back. And, some, you know, sometimes you see people like that who don't come back the same way. Yeah. And they're almost a different person. They're relatives. You know, and then, you know, if Jesus, if you're a veteran or whatever like that, you could see why or whatever. But sometimes you have the, oh, they're, you know, they're not the same per you know because of you know lack of oxygen to the brain or the traumatic sure. incident so you see a lot of that here with her it's such, it, it being a head injury i think yeah. you know she comes back a little but there's also kind of what's brilliant about it the script is that um that batman bruce wayne and batman are both kind of like the flip side of the coin the mirror image of both Oswald Cobblepot and Catwoman. You know, like the Penguin is Penguin and Batman both come they were children of wealthy families. They're both abandoned by their 
parents. In Bruce Wayne's case, not intentionally. Yeah. But it, it was that traumatic event of and that lo- that kind of like lack of parenting and and that what happens with his parents that then leads him down the road to become a, a, a hero, whereas the penguin being cast aside, thrown away by his parents, leads him to become a villain. And with Selena, so it's like the penguin is, you know, kind of like the flip side of the coin of Bruce Wayne, whereas Catwoman is kind of the flip side of the coin of Batman. Yeah, you know they both have this weird dual. This they're, they're both de- dealing dealing with this weird duality in their lives, putting on the mask, going out, and you know in some ways, um, you know exploring, feeding that darker side of their personality behind a mask. Well, that's why that scene when <clears throat> they go to the the masquerade of the Red Death near the end is amazing because they come dressed as themselves, and that's. You know, symbolic of. Well, that, that's my favorite scene in the know, whole movie. Yeah, to me, it's like this. You know, to me, it's like the, that's the culmination of everything that's going on in this movie. Without that scene, it's like this movie for me would fall completely flat. Yeah, it's the fact that they are drawn together. They are the. There are two sides of the same coin, and, um, and you know, even though she, you. She, we're predisposed to think of her as a villain, and you know she blows up a store or whatever. She's more of like the anarchy side of what vigilanteism can sure. be like to a certain extent. But it's like we know, and they don't know. And that revelation, when they realize who each other are, it's just it's magic to me. There's, um, I mean, we discussed this with even the Superman two. The Donner cut versus the theatrical cut, and I said the reason why I like the theatrical cut is because like it's it plays into like the romantic in me. Sure, and this does too. <laughs> and and that that relationship, and then that reveal, it's like it's almost like you feel so you feel for them in well, that moment. And She's like, what do we what do we got to do? Are we supposed to fight now? Yeah, um, and it's sad. Uh, uh, the the novelization by Craig Shaw Garner, who also wrote the novelization for the first movie, which is cool. He did both of them. Um, in that scene, uh, they both feel each, like they realize, and then he, sh- since they're intimate, sh- he moves his hand and she lets him. He feels her wound. Yeah. And then she goes down him and goes into his and feels her scrapes on his chest, and then there's a revelation there. And I only bring that up because we're just talking about it. Yeah. Um, the point you make, uh, I'm always fast, even at the end of the Batman. I feel like the Joker, remember in the cathedral, he's saying, like, you made me. You know, w- you know, it's like, it's almost like we're the same. Um, uh, it's a very interesting idea, which I love Scorsese doing in Cape Fear, his reversion of Cape Fear, because in that movie, for me, the entire movie, Max Cady wants, you know, Max Cady's been treated like shit because Nick Nolte thinks he's above him in society, like a social level, where then Max Cady makes it his mission to become educated, to get out of prison, to get his revenge, just to prove at that end of that movie, we're the same. And I feel like in that Cape Fear, almost Max Cady wins because by the end of it, Nick Nolte's ready to kill him with a rock. He's in, and that's yeah, why yeah. he's laughing. So at the end of the movie, when he lets himself die, when the piece of thing drags him under the water and he starts singing uh, in tongues, uh, I think he feels like I can die now because I succeeded in what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring him down to my level and make him realize that we're the same. Yeah. So bring that to this movie. It's, it's, it's interesting here that these... Uh, kind of in Batman, but in Batman Returns, you have them 
posing the question like we are kind of the same. What's the difference, you know, between uh, a vigilante who kills versus a vigilante who doesn't kill or a bad guy? You know, they, these people have the same upbringing, like you're saying. They're both from rich families and both the same kind of things happen for tragic regions, regions on either side. But one chooses to, to, to want to protect and do good while the other one takes it well I'm going to screw the entire city and society yeah. the novel is, you can't blame him for it not at all in the novelization uh, at the at the beginning of it uh, you you get kind of the penguin's thought process and you feel like from the beginning it is his idea you when I've seen when I saw the movie so quickly to get back to what I was saying a minute ago or more than a minute ago you have uh, Waters comes in, and I think uh, Waters eliminates the Robin character. He says, like, there's, like we said, there's too many people. This is what I was talking about, how many villains are in a movie. Yeah. And then he realizes with Two-Face, Billy D was still, it was in his contract. So I guess Tim Burton or Waters said, this is too much. And the idea was they wanted to set, have Harvey Dent be in this movie. And Harvey Dent was going to be the one near the end of the movie. Ends up getting scarred by Selena Kyle. Yeah. In the explosion at the end where Christopher Walken dies, and that was going to turn him into Two-Face for the next movie. So for whatever reason, I don't know if they didn't want to make Harvey Dent corrupted, they couldn't figure it out, they said, let's take Harvey Dent out, and we'll make Max Shrek, and ha- take all that and put on Max Shrek, his character. Yeah. So Billy D, evidently the, the Warner Brothers had to pay him, had to buy him out of his contract. Uh, and I guess they paid a crap load of money to get Billy D out. So then they didn't have Two-Face. So... Uh, why am I bringing all this up? So when we get to Batman Returns, um, where were we? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about with the Max Shrek character. I don't know if that's where you were going. Maybe. Because uh, the, in earlier versions of the script, Max, it was gonna, Max Shrek was, ended up being a, a cobble pot. And it was going like to be like the, this, the like, brother, and then and yeah, and, and I always I uh, in the movie he was like the golden child of the family. I, I even feel like kind of it's it's hinted at. I don't uh, either in the dialogue in the movie Batman Returns or maybe in the novelization that that Sh- Shrek might have even killed the wife to get you know to get the power. So maybe he he even he married into the money and then he kills the wife, but he still loves his son. It's not an issue of like you know. It, uh, uh, I think for him it's almost like the the old um, railroad barons where it's going to be generational. Yeah. They did pattern his look off of uh, J.P. Morgan, and they also Christopher Walken also said that Vin, uh, Vincent Price was an inspiration. Where he told Burton told him to look at some of Vincent Price's later roles of how he looked to have that kind of look with the hair and stuff. Um, so there was an idea of the of Shrek setting having a legacy to pass stuff on to, but. I almost do get the hint kind of in this movie you can read in that he, they might have been brothers. You know, maybe they are kind of related. You know, in the novelization, uh, when uh, Penguin's going through the, the records, he f- learns very early on that his parents were actually, his dad was a district attorney and his mother was active in the DAR, which I don't know what the DAR stands for. Uh, maybe I'm just stupid and I can't read what the abbreviation is. But at the ho- but very early on with the Penguin, he starts saying he has a master plan. You know, where in Batman Returns here, I never got the master pr- plan until he he came up with it. So when I was watching the movie, when he's writing everything down in the first viewing, it never occurred to me that he's making a list. Yeah. You know, well, I, that's because we don't know that he has a plot. We don't know what his plan is. But I've, so it's 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 hinted at very much that he has a plan. Where it didn't even occur to me, like in the book, it's hinted at, like you know, this is 
wait till they see what I might, you know, I'm going to do. And you're like, oh my God, he's up to something. Where I guess maybe I wasn't smart enough when I was little to say, oh, he's up to something. But I just was trying to, I was still enthralled, like, oh my God. I was like, at the people of Gotham. I'm like, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, it's something we trust him, but, you know. You know yeah, I mean? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's something, it's hard to, to remember. Yeah. It's hard to remember what you thought as a, like a 12 year old kid or whatever. And it's also hard to remember. It's hard to think of, like, if I was an adult when I saw it in 1992. Yeah. Would I have picked up on it? When you watch it now and you know. Yeah, it's it's there. Then you're like, okay, like, how long does it take to, you know. Go through the whole records to find every firstborn. And he's going through them and he's writing things down. You know, it's there. Yeah. But because we don't know the plan yet, I don't know if it's something we would have picked up on had we seen it, you know, if we were 40 when we saw it in 1992. Um but well, Burton brings in. But to to you, is this where you're going with the second writer? Because he's the one that comes up with this plot. Well, the third writer, the third writer. Yeah, the yeah. guy that. Yeah. It did. So then Burton brings on set, uh, hires a, to touch everything up a guy named Wesley Sh- Strick, and Wesley Strick also is on set to do on set changes. But he brings in the whole Moses parable because I guess he says when he comes on, he feels like penguins motivations like are still kind of cloudy yeah like what's his plan he's like, just running he, for what's mayor he looking to do <laughs> when daniel the second writer when daniel waters came on he brought the idea evidently there is a two-part episode from batman 66 yeah where the penguin runs for mayor and i don't know if that was a conscious decision on his part or not but yeah. he's like let's have him do that and then it's something that then crosses over and it's paid tribute to at gotham in in later seasons yeah uh so it's odd, and for me, that was silly when I was little. I always thought, like, well, him running for mayor is absurd, but it, it works. When you read the novelization, it, it makes sense where uh, Max is up to a lot of it. So, like, the scene where he makes the deal with um, uh, the penguin, and then the next scene where the mayor's son's kid, the baby's kidnapped, and penguin rec- rescues him you realize that it was max's idea yeah, yeah. to have well, the, the, in the movie too <laughs> that, to have the family there as well yeah yeah okay because in the in the novelization he says like it was his idea of having the the, the like, oh i don't know if he says that that you should have the family there but i i got the very clear oh, sense that, yeah, that this that he was set all it up max yeah Rex sure it's a plan. setup but it, it, to, to, in that he tips his hand he's a little more evil and, and we can get into him and chip but um Daniels writes that about the about him going to run for mayor, and then when you get to Strick, the third writer coming on set, he's the one. It's like you know we need to have an idea of what he's actually doing, and he comes up with the Moses thing about like yeah. why not putting him in the water. You know, he's discarded as a kid going down the river, and he comes up, and then about later on he wants his firstborns, which is in Moses when the angel of death comes. You know, uh, which is a stroke of br- brilliance. It's really cool to think the whole time. See, I guess for me, I thought he was an evil guy. Uh, when at my first viewing of Batman Returns, but then he just loses it when the crowd turns on him. Where in this, the whole time, it's like, oh, his he's going to go. His, you know, it, I, I don't his, know if I'm explaining He's got this. his plan for world domination. Yeah, and I never <laughs> he thought has he his was his plan gonna, of revenge. Yeah, which is we different. We just don't know what his plan of revenge yeah. is until, until he pops up in the middle of the... The ballroom. The ballroom. Yeah. Um, but... You know, it, it it makes sense. I mean, in terms of like they needed to have him want he they, he had to have 
what was his goal? Like you said, what was his motivation the whole time anyway? Why did he come up? Well, the, what was he doing? The, the, the first writer, Sam Hamm, the first script he wrote with all that other stuff about Vicki Vale, the first movie in Harvey Dent, his, the, the plot kind of there was about a hidden treasure they were both going to go after or something of the sorts. And that's where they're like, well, that's not really, I don't know if we want to go for that. So they bring Daniel Waters, and he's the one that kind of clears all this up, like we said, running for mayor and adding, injecting the... Um, the Catwoman, you know, her being her own feminist kind of a woman. Yeah. So when Strick comes on, Strick, the third writer, is the one who kind of cleans stuff up, sums the dialogue. He's having meetings with Ke- Keaton, and, and I think Daniels had wrote a lot of heavy dialogue for Batman, like speeches and stuff, and Keaton's the one, like kind of almost like a Clint Eastwood or Dirty Harry kind of thing where, where people like, well, or, or Steve McQueen were like, I don't need to say all that. You know, let's take that out and just have it with a look. And Batman has very little. He's not doing, that's what... The idea is that the costume is going to be so powerful yeah. that you don't need to say stuff. You know, it, it's, you can, he can say all that with a look. You know? So that's another thing where Keaton takes a lot of his lines out. You know? And certainly Keaton almost becomes just like uh, he's set dressing for their story. Sure. You know, you know it's interesting that the, this idea of what the Penguin's master plan is and why he's come to the surface, what he's doing, why, you know, why is he doing all this? It's interesting, like, because, like, you need, in my mind, you need it. Like, it makes, like, I feel like it, the movie would be a mess if you didn't have it. But then at the end of the day, the way the movie's constructed, it's so throwaway. <laughs> you know what I mean? His backstory? <laughs> well, not his backstory, but, like, what he's trying to do. <laughs> his, his stealing of the firstborns like it never amounts to anything. There's no payoff to it. Well, he well the idea in the uh, which is I think set up clearer in the book is that he's going to kill. You know, he says that in the movie he's going to kill them all. Yeah, and they have to. They had to tone down as well because in the book there is a scene where the the Triangle Circus Gang is taking the kids, and they thought it was going to be too frightening for children who were seeing it of the age to see these circus guys coming in, grabbing kids, and the kids are screaming out of the car, yeah, you know, yeah. and then having them. The only scene you see is they're all kind of in a... But you know, I don't know if you even see the kids, really. No, you kind of... It's, it's, it's implied that they're all in there. I mean, I get, you know, you get what the plan is, and I, and I think it's it's clear. Yeah. It's just that at the end of the day, it's like it doesn't... Unf- it only... It only unfolds in about three minutes of screen time. Yeah, and then it doesn't even work. <laughs> it doesn't. You know, work. It doesn't work. It's, it's thwarted. It's fo- We find out what it is. It's foiled, and then we move on. Yeah, and that was like it was all that for that. So that maybe that's the reason why that maybe lends the more of the idea to me where it just it escaped me when I was little because yeah. you see that setup. If you're looking, he's writing notes. He's got stuff. He's like, don't touch that. And then when he gets mad, it was more like I thought, oh, he had this plan in the back of it to get revenge of what just happened as opposed to he was going to get revenge the entire freaking time. Well, he didn't even want to be mayor. Yeah. When Max Shrek comes, he's like, you could be, you know, I want you to be mayor. And he's like, he has plans. Yeah. He's like, you know, and yeah, and he gets, he gets diverted. In in the book, the book is very sexual too, which is in the movie, but a lot of, some of the jokes I missed, uh, this viewing where she's at the ballroom scene where she's like, oh, it's semi-hard. You know, that's clearly a reference to something. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then I didn't realize in this viewing, I, I wrote it down in the book because I didn't know it was said in the movie, but then it's said in the movie where he says unlimited poo-tang. And I looked up, like, poo-tang to me is vagina. <laughs> and um, I looked it up, and evidently the, the 
I, I was like, oh my God, they're able to say that. It's like, to me, it's like, you know, when you say like people say bawling or making whoopee, yeah. it's like, gee, you know, even the old days, oh, we're going to make whoopee all day. You know, it's like, <laughs> how are you able to say that? Because we know what it means, but it's just a weird way of saying it. So when I looked up the, the definition of poontang, evidently from World War One. There is French prostitutes are called, I don't know how, what the, it's, it's however it's pronounced in French. And the uh, English or American speaking or, or the, the English speaking people couldn't say it. So they were saying Poontang. And that's where it came, Poontang. So if you look up Poontang, it's actually supposed to be like another name for prostitute. But I only know it as just a, a, another word for the the female uh, anatomy. Yeah. So when I heard, when I saw this, I was like, oh my God, you know, he's like unlimited pussy, you know, <laughs> but it's not, it's, it means that, you know, but it's, there's a lot of, he's into, that's in the book too. He's like, oh, you know, I love all the assistants, the ones with very amply, you know, the large the endowed. And that's why he's, he's putting a lot of buttons on the women. So it's a lot of dirty. So his whole, I, Max entices him to run for mayor just on the idea of he'd be able to, you know, uh, have, carnal yeah, relations yeah. with a lot of these women which is just because it's just such a primal he's like ah, okay ah, you know what i mean he's like it's like young frankenstein you know, he's like, ah. <laughs> you know what i mean oh uh, that's the whole diversion but it's um i guess yeah briefly she- shrek uh the, the idea of that i think is great i mean i think it works i love how for me the I, the world of this movie is 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 completely uh within the other world of the other movie to the point where like the set piece in this movie which is Gotham Plaza they model or center they modeled after Rockefeller Center in New York City which you can kind of see that idea yeah Um, in the background to like camera right in the back there's a cathedral and you see them walking by it a couple times and I wonder if that's supposed to maybe be the same cathedral from the first movie yeah because uh, at the end of the first movie I always thought that whole sequence where the parade is and then where the Batwing comes down in the city that to me is very New York City 6th Avenue right around Rockefeller Center a lot of the Art Deco buildings look exactly like that with the cathedral at the end of the street yeah so I thought that was the connection of the world but I think it's the, the, the 40s department store idea and the first appearance of Shrek I think it is where they they go up the same way you see Jack Palance. They go up, you know, with the camera up to the top. Yeah. And yeah. you go in, and it's a great, beautiful Art Deco space. And, you know, they're all in those, you know, double-breasted pinstripe suits of the era, you know. And, and, and it's a great idea to have just this, this complete, you know, ruthless, you know, guy who owns department stores. It's almost like the antithesis of the Macy's Miracle on 34th Street, you know, where it's like this guy's, you know. And then you find out. You know, he has a plan, that, and then the plan is to, to, to suck the power from these power plants. And when the penguin starts rattling off all the stuff he's done, how greasy the guy is. Um, for me, walking in this walking in this movie, it's weird because now I I think it's comfortable to say he's kind of a parody. Like he 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 loves almost making fun of himself yeah. or doing like Pacino does the Pacino now, De Niro does the De Niro, walking does the walking. Yeah. Uh, I wonder around this time, I was trying to figure out when I first realized who Walken was. I've seen The Dead Zone. I don't think I'd seen Deer Hunter at this point. Uh, but right around here, what year is Pulp Fiction? The next year, right? 93, maybe? 93 or 94. Yeah. So I knew Walken by that point because when he makes his camera, I'm like, oh, look, it's Christopher Walken. So I'm wondering, like, at this movie, in this movie, I was like, oh, it's this, it's, you know, I hadn't seen. Um, 
what's the name with him and uh, Sean Penn? You know, the close range at close range. I hadn't seen that movie when I was that young, but he's so walking in this movie. So the you know, if you want to ever show anybody the acting prowess of Christopher Walken uh, on full effect, this would be the movie where you see like you know, for me like Pacino, Son of a Woman. <laughs> yeah. He's going into that w- w- realm. Uh, you know, this is clearly not the walking from like you know um, from King of New York. This is the '90s walking as we know it now, where he's not using any kind of punctuation. Yeah, well, this you is, know this is the, definitely the first movie that it registered to me that he was you know like whenever I saw him after this, yeah. it was always like, oh, it's the guy from Batman Returns. But by that point, I think I had seen Communion. Like I had seen movies sure. that he was in. Yeah, but like for some, but Batman Returns was the movie. Like, oh, it's the it's Max Shrek. But he's so in this movie. At one point, you could say it's so uh, over the top parody, tongue in cheek. But at the same time, I think it works great in the context of this movie. I think he's brilliant. I mean, even like Jan, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just his delivery. Like, I'm I've been a fan, as I said many times, of Saturday Night Live growing up, and he used to have a run where he was on. He was a contender with Tom Hanks back in the day of being like on the most episodes. Yeah. And he'd have this running gag of that's what he would do, the Continental Gentleman and all these kind of things. So seeing him deliver, I think it just works great in this movie. Uh, and even his acting of like when, when Selena Kyle comes back, you know, or whatever, you know, I think it really works, you know. Yeah. So I enjoyed him a lot in this movie. And then him as the, 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 the villain. Yeah. You brought up him, you know, when the penguin brings him down there and he's like, you know, what happened to your partner? (laughs) But this idea of, it's something I definitely wouldn't have thought about as a kid, but as an adult and, and I wish they almost played it into it more, but I love that it's there. Even if it's just this little bit of like, he's like, well, even if those documents existed, I would have shredded them. And he's like, well, you know, scotch tape and a lot of patience, you know, and it was there is this element of the penguin that it's hinted at there that I wish was explored more, but I love that it's there and even this little bit of like what the world throws away. You know, think of all the shit we throw away. Oh yeah. And like the personal stuff. That you never think you're gonna see again. Yeah, and it's like junk to us, it's trash. Out of sight, out of mind. But then there's like if you have a, a mind like the penguins in the in the sewers. Yeah. You know, like you could have anything. He could really, you know, we he discovers all this stuff about Max Shrek. But you think about it, like this stuff is useful to him, and he he could know every, so everything about everybody in Gotham. Yeah, basically, like I wish that was a bigger part well, of it. But I love that it's like even if it's just that little moment. Like I love that there's this idea of like he was thrown away. Yeah, you know, by his parents and like all this stuff that's just trash he was trash but it like this stuff is is useful and he can use it and because he's this, got this mastermind for evil that's not even really pushed upon on the even in this movie but if you just read into it i just like that's just a really cool thing that i wish was bigger but it's still cool it's a great idea it's it shows you even though he's thrown away in his upbringing that he's he's extremely intelligent he's got to be and he he devises this plot to to do this, and it's come almost like Heath Ledger in uh, as the Joker. It's like when you actually step back and you try to figure out that plan that Heath Ledger as the Joker had. It's like whoa, you know what the what kind of you know? It's like he planned this to do this, and with these people to do that, and it's like it's like mind blowing. So the the Penguin who 
in this movie, Batman Returns, was very funny. You know, yeah. I find him a lot of his jokes to be hilarious. Like his, his, even not the jokes, but like the stuff he says is very intelligent and funny. Um, and then the idea of how long he's been planning this, like you're saying, like if he's down there and he is has a uh, you know a superior IQ or intellect that he's able to get the idea, and then he's the part of him acquiring the the well, he's I guess always had the red uh, triangle circus. Yeah, gang, well, that's also you know, a, a really that's also like a really kind of wonderful thing that doesn't need exposition a crazy circus gang yeah the, but like the way he's presented in the movie is that he's a freak yeah and so we don't need to have like this backstory of like him being found as a kid and then and then brought to like a circus or whatever you know like there's this background that doesn't need a background the fact that his family and the his and the group of people that he leads is the circus gang like just it it automatically creates this like of this backstory for this character that very well like I think even insinuates more of like this like weird like not weird but this awful kind of like tragic sadness that must be in his life. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. Um, you talk about there's there's a, a phone book of how many people they say were considered for you know Dustin Hoffman these or that, but then when you listen to the the people talking about it, they always wrote it with Danny DeVito in mind, and they just thought about coming around to him. And then when Danny DeVito heard about the casting, he's like, "Oh, I'd love to do that." And I guess the stars aligned; he was cast. And Danny DeVito says that I guess Tim Burton had drawn him a painting that he gave to him while they were starting to develop the backstory about this for Danny DeVito for prep. And the painting, evidently, which Danny DeVito says he still has, is this kind of um, little guy, little kid creature, kind of with with a yellow ball with red and white stripes. And the caption says, "My name is Jimmy, but my friends call me the Hideous Penguin Boy." Yeah, and it's supposed to be him as a child in the carnival. Yeah. And then he gives this DeVito and says, "This is you. You know, this is how you build your character." So, um, Arctic World. Uh, where he drifts off to, and then the penguins find him at the beginning of that beautiful sequence, like Moses going down the Nile, or if it's the Nile, Euphrates. Um, that is supposed to be an old World's Fair exhibit or some sort of old zoo or some sort of thing. So uh, for whatever reason, the penguins find the, the, the penguins find the penguin and raise him, but at some point, the I guess the circus who comes to town finds him, and then he becomes. I would assume yeah. the backstory. Well, the thing it's like, yeah, it's it's. Why do we need to? Yeah, they don't. We don't need to know it. But it's it's kind of there's some kind of insinuation that, that he I became think a sideshow. That it's brilliant, and you know? that he became a the, a penguin boy, like something you'd see P.T. Barnum do. Sure, and then like like you see him reading the microfilm, the microfiche, or whatever. Uh, which in the book they talk about, uh, Bruce Wayne says that he has a special computerized microfiche reader in the Batcave for instant access to history, which basically, in early terms, is like he has the internet access. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> which is like a couple of years before you get the internet. And he's able to just search keywords. So he searches the Red Triangle Gang, and then he has access to all the microfiche, and he's looking. And then you get the idea of they're tra- their traveling carnival, and then children are going missing, which is odd. Why did they never allude to what's happening to the kids? Are they kidnapping the kids? to 
have them become like carnies? Are they killing the kids? Are they eating yeah. the kids? Is maybe the penguin by accident playing with the kids, turning into a mice and men, where he's killing the kids? Or yeah. you know what I mean? Or, or they're serial killer uh, fucking child molesters <laughs> in the gang, you yeah, know? Yeah. So whatever happens, they get run out of town, and then they have to go underground, and then they become this gang. And see, for even me, for when I was little, I, I, I find some of it silly where they're all... They're all evil, and they're all ready to go, and they all have these talents, and they're all, you know, this gang that's going to be these marauders, but it's a fucking movie, so who cares? But it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun, and they talk about, I guess, in, the, in Warner Brothers, when they were designing the costuming, they said they had all these, Warner's had, keeps all their costumes hidden away, and they had all these costumes from the 30s and 40s that they weren't doing anything with, with that had been sitting there, so they were able to cherry pick and make these these costumes of these circus guys and they're kind of crazy looking the organ grinder and the big guys and you know now it's worth noting that um there are many recurring saturday night movie sleepover actors in this movie that have been in previous episodes and since we're talking about the red triangle gang a good way to at least the first person to mention is uh rick zumwalt who was of course in dun, da, da, da. over the top. <laughs> he was, uh, he's, he's, he's like, what's his face? He's like the muscle man. In yeah. this, he's the he's strong the, man in this movie. And he's but, the guy that the, that uh, Batman the, puts the dynamite and throws him over. Yeah. He's, hit me as hard as you can. And, he's he's the ultimate. Uh, he's the guy that uh, villain that uh, what's Hawk has to. To over to take the flip of the hat <laughs> and go over the top. There's with. a th- th- over the top. There's over a couple. The top. There's a couple of people. The other guy who I who name eludes me. I real. I think I recognized. Now, see, tell me if I'm wrong. Well, there's two guys. One person who already appeared this year. Um, yes. You know who I'm talking about. Uh-huh. Okay. So the one guy is. Remember when the guy, the guy that grabs Catwoman uh-huh. and has the, where she gets the uh, taser from? I'm pretty sure that's the Native American gentleman from Renegade. And then he shows up later. I don't think so. I thought he was. Remember Renegade? Had, he had like he yeah. had the nice, the, the, what is it, the business in the front and the party in the back? Oh, yeah. You know, I thought that was him in, in makeup. Because when I was little, I thought I recognized him too. And then later on, you Maybe. see him doing Maybe stuff. Maybe it was. Uh, and then the heavier guy that the Penguin kills, I think he's somebody famous as well. Uh, which people are going to say, oh, it's Joe Blow, you idiot. But I, I forget yeah. the guy's name. Another guy, Doug Jones, who's, who's this was one of his early roles. Um and uh, oh, I'll get to that when we about the circus game later on when we get to the part. But you're going to allude to the gentleman from Predator too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Henry Kinji, which is he's not a part of the circus gang. He just a he's, a, he's just a mugger. Yeah, he he starts to mug that woman. That Catwoman intervenes. Yeah, and Catwoman cuts his face up. He's the crazy guy doing coke at the beginning of. Uh, Predator 2 when the Predator comes the Jamaican gangs and they're fighting and, and the Predator kills them all he's almost like Aah! is he the guy that like falls into the cake or something or falls onto the table or? he might He well he's the guy that puts his face and gets up like Aah! and then he's yeah, yeah, shooting yeah and then he's the last one alive that they see him running in fear and they're like you know rigs <laughs> <laughs> why is he full of rigs um, yeah but he's in this movie and of course uh, there are two other people that are also made appearances Earlier this year, Pat Hingle has Pat Hingle been in this year's movie? I'm not, I don't know about this year. Michael Goff, Michael Goff, who we had this year in our anthologies. 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 Uh, he was in the Tales from the. Is no, he's in. He's in. Um, was he in Tales from the Crypt? He's from Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> Tales of a Wizard. No one's gonna know that one. 
Yeah, go look up the wizard. Is it the sorcerer? What's his name? <laughs> well, it must be the wizard. Because the, wiz- that's the tales from the tales of the wizard. No, it's not the wizard. It's the. Uh, but that's the song, right? That's the song, and then come before the storm. Um, that's a that's a okay, but yeah, Michael Goff, Michael Goff, who who we had on, of course, he's in the first Batman movie, and I feel like we saw him again. He's in Boys from Brazil, which we haven't covered, but he's in. I think Tales from the Dark Side, right? Is it Tales from the Dark Side? No, I'm sorry. Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt. He's yeah. in one of those. Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror. Vault of Horror. Yeah. But I was thinking we have uh, cameos by Paul Rubens. Yes, at the beginning, who's great, who's playing his father, He's which cool. also then later on you brought up Gotham. Yeah, he ends up playing the Penguin's father in Gotham. Again, so that's a nice but little... But of course we did Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, so we have uh, Penguin's mother in this. Is Diane Salinger who played Simone? Yeah, also Pee-wee, <laughs> and then that's the lady. If we remember, and I think we mentioned this. Yeah, we in did the Pee-wee episode. She's in the diner, and then she's the one that he brings up to the dinosaur, and then the her the the, the boyfriend, the big guy, comes running. But they play they play the penguins' parents. Yeah, great. Um, I'm a little disappointed. I know I don't want people to be upset if they're big Michael Murphy fans of the mayor. I wanted Lee Wallace to repri- Lee Wallace to reprise his role. Because Lee Wallace has appeared twice, once as the mayor in Batman, second as the mayor in the Taken of Pelham One Two Three, and he's mayor. He's mayor Koch to me. You know, I used to think when I saw the first Batman movie, Koch was mayor. Was it the Dinkins administration yet? But I knew Koch as the mayor in New York. Yeah. So I thought they got a Koch look alike. That's how I thought as a kid that it was Koch. Yeah, everybody thought it was Koch. You know, we knew because we're you know we're living near the New York City, and it was very at the time. So I thought. It's a it's a takeoff on New York City, you know. It's a, they're uh, they're there's it's a send up. So in this movie, I wish they brought uh, Lee Wallace back in, but they didn't. They have Michael Murphy. Uh, he does a fine role, and you also have the great Pat Hingle, who um, is in the first movie as Commissioner Gordon. He's in this movie. Him and Michael Goff are the only guys that are in all four movies playing Alfred and Batman. And Michael Keaton talks about how you know he was very close in these movies to Pat Hingle and to. Um, uh, Michael Goff and uh, I love Pat Hingle we talked about Pat Hingle in the past uh, Pat Hingle who I think we talked about somewhere uh, was up for the role of um, uh, what's the preacher's name Elmer Gantry that movie and he was just about a, about to get it but then he fell down an elevator shaft in his apartment building he was there for like I don't know like like almost like 12 or 14 hours so he was like in bed for a year messed up and that's why the rest of his life he walked with a limp but it ended up being that Kurt uh, Burt Lancaster got that role and their careers went different ways right? I think Pat Hingle would have been much more of a box office draw he wouldn't have been like a character actor that we know him as like, yeah. a, like a Jack or George Kennedy-esque you know but Pat Hingle we love Pat Hingle yeah. um uh, he's in all four movies. Uh, interesting, you know, when you go, we look at the casting of Gordon, I feel like they're going more towards the Batman 66 casting because you look at, like, Gary Oldman's portrayal of Gordon in the Nolan movies, he's very much like he's an active guy, he's running around, much like we see, like, Commissioner Gordon in the animated series, even though he's got white hair, he's still effing shit up. Yeah, much yeah. like the Killing Joke um, and maybe even the Dark Knight comic book uh, Commissioner Gordon's. But... I think Pat Hingle's methods aren't the best because in this movie, <laughs> when he's just showing that one piece of evidence, they just got off the floor. It's like, you know, you should keep some of that for, you know, to ha- ha- keep that behind your hat. But, you know, we love Pat Hingle. Um, we have Vincent Schiavelli, 
I hope I'm pronouncing that right. From uh, people know him from Ghost. Uh, he's in a he's in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. He was on Taxi. He plays the organ grinder in this. He was for me when I remember when he, I was little. He was instantly recognizable. Uh, also part of the the Triangle Circus Gang. Um, do we have anybody else of notable? Uh, Not that I can think of. Which um, uh, the Sun Chip I think is is a brilliant casting. Um, well, he's notable. I mean, he's worth noting. Yeah. <laughs> Since you brought him up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was in a lot of stuff uh, of, of our generation earlier, and that he, um, his name's Andrew Briniarski, I think. I don't yeah. know how to pronounce it. We're the worst on this show about pronouncing stuff. But he. Our uh, attentions are good, though. Like, he, he was, he was, he appeared in stuff like Necessary Roughness. Yeah. Um, some other stuff, but then I think, you know, he was later masked in this part. But I think for generations younger than us who are in love, who who really love and appreciate the the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which one? The one with um, the two thousand three version. He's Leatherface. That's and, a really good with Arlie Ermy in that. The- yeah, he plays Leatherface oh, in awesome. the two thousand three uh, remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then. Reprises the role in the 2006 Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning. Yes. Um, so, yeah, he's in stuff, that guy. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> but I love his casting because he kind of looks like what you'd, you know, he looks the jock role almost genetically engineered, like how he looks, <laughs> like his face. And, yeah. you know, he looks like he's walking son and he's, the you know, the, the college boy. In the book, he's a little more complicit because in the scene where Selena Kyle gets pushed out the window... Uh, Max turns, sees his son is there, and is frightened, like, oh, my God, he might have witnessed this. And he tries to make up, and he says, oh, you know, uh, she, she, she lost her footing and fell, and then Chip says, no, she jumped, Dad. And he's like, oh, nice. <laughs> All right. So Chip is a little more, you know, in it to win it as well yeah, in this, yeah. you know, as not just a, you know... And you also see Max having a little more, some morals because he doesn't want that at the beginning of the movie when his son's like run, Dad, and he's like, all right, and he runs. It's like, oh, what a asshole. But then <laughs> later in the movie with the firstborn, she's like, no, listen, and it, it, that could even be selfish means anyway, yeah, yeah. because he he kill me, but I still want my legacy going with my son. Sure, but still, it kind of has a. And then people say even when he's in the cage, he seems like he kind of has a heart because he doesn't like what the penguin's saying he's going to do with the firstborn. I can't really tell. If there was a reaction to him, like, oh, my God, you know, or he's just saying that because it smells in there, yeah. you know. Um, so uh, I think it's a very noteworthy cast. I think we covered everybody. Of course, you know, we said Michelle Pfeiffer. We said Danny DeVito. Um, and uh, people know the plot. I mean, like we just said, it's a beginning. It's a it's a beautiful introduction. I guess we can talk as we go. All that whole opening sequence is all done with uh, was all done with miniatures. All yeah, that stuff, well, that entire sequence. I think something has to be said about the matte paintings in this movie and all the miniature. And this is, they say, is the, we always talk, we always say this on this podcast, but this movie is probably one of the last movies <laughs> to actually be done in this, in this way. Yeah, yeah. You know, to it, the part where they were just using some CGI in this for the, for the bats, the, the bats stuff. and the penguins. They, they say, somebody says that this was, I think even nominated for an Oscar for for best special effects and maybe makeup visual effects yeah and they say that this movie could be the first movie that does it's always these if I have to word this right this is the first movie that actually with the CG with uh, computer generated effects makes 
something that people will recognize, like an animal. Hence yeah. the bats and the penguins, which you go on to see in like Jurassic Park the next year. But this is the first movie, and then we already said like you know fucking Last Starfighter is the first movie to have like them making designing a spacecraft. Yeah, yeah. this is the first movie that actually has and something that recognizable to the eye with the penguins and the um, the bat, but. The special effects in this, the the miniature work, and the, yeah, you well, know. you know, usually, typically, um, a movie would hire a special effects company, and then they would handle all the visual effects. So, like, they'd hire like ILM, for instance, Industrial Light and Magic, and Industrial Light and Magic would cover all the visual effects, not the makeup effects, but all like the other the matte paintings, all that stuff. But this movie, it was like they found various companies that each had strengths. There was, you know, one company was really good at animation. One company was really good at the CGI. And one company was really good at doing the matte paintings. And one company was really good at doing the miniatures. And so they ended up, like, kind of cherry-picking all these maybe lesser-known companies to film nerds like us, but more known in the industry, of, like, what all their strengths were. And so it was all these other companies working, all these different companies working in tandem yeah. to kind of, and a lot of it's like you can't even, you know, the way it's supposed to be. Like, you don't even know it's there. No, I mean, the, uh, I mean, you, may, you can maybe make an argument that you could tell with some of the matte paintings. Oh, sure. But, but that's, the, so that's also part of that's just like the style. It's the style of it. I mean, I, th- I absolutely love looking, I can get lost looking in those matte paintings of all the, 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 the miniature, even in the first movie, the complete, uh, Anton First, who did the uh, production design and created basically Gotham City and the Batmobile and the Batman's look, which we talk heavily about in the first podcast we did on 89. Uh, and we talk all about the design, how he designed Gotham in such a way, and the, we talk about the zoning and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Go check that out. Uh, for this movie, he couldn't come back because he was at the time committed to doing Awakenings. And Awakenings was in post-production. He only has a handful of credits to his name. He designed um, the Planet Hollywood in uh, New York City, that location. He did um, he did Batman. He did Awakenings. And um, he did a handful of other movies uh, that, that got him noticed. And then uh, he's doing post-production. He did Full Metal Jacket in, in 1987. He did just one kid, and it's a lovely day tomorrow. And then he did the Company of Wolves, and he does Full Metal Jacket. He gets Batman. Then he's doing Awakenings, and because he's not able to do Awakenings, they hire somebody else. And sadly, in 1991, the same day Freddie Mercury and Eric Carr died, uh, he had separated from his wife. Uh, this is Anton first, and he was taking a, a, a medication called. Halcon, which I hope I'm pronouncing right, it's a sleeping drug that was later banned in England because it had side effects of amnesia, paranoia, and depression, and he had a drinking problem. Well, he was supposed to be going into rehab in, in, in 1992, uh, early 1992, but on the night of November the 24th, he told his friends he was going to just to get a pack of cigarettes out of his car while he was in L.A., but he instead he jumped off the eighth story of a parking garage and killed himself. And um, his work is huge in this movie because they kept a lot of it even going into the third movie of without him we wouldn't have had the Batmobile we wouldn't have had the Batman's yeah. look we wouldn't have had um, the design of uh, of Gotham and all that kind of a thing so they bring in in this movie Bo 
Welch. Bo Welch to kind of take up the reins here. Yeah, who had who Burton had worked with on Beetlejuice and then just before Batman returns on Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. So he's he's a guy that comes in and then they do they elaborate almost on the world that's already been created, which is which is interesting. It's just like almost a character study. And you have these amazing matte paintings and the the miniatures. I mean, even and some of the stuff they were doing like it, they said that almost, almost all of it's in camera. Like uh, how they would, you know, you, you, you'd shoot something, you'd backwind it, you'd, you'd, uh, and it would get a bit technical, but you'd cover up what you just shot, you'd uncover what you didn't shoot, and you'd shoot it again, and you'd do it so you get these layers, and then you yeah, get your final for shot. The visual effects, yeah. yeah. or they would do stuff where, like, when the Ice Princess is falling off, they have her on a rig, and she's coming down towards the model, and it's a model of the Gotham Plaza. Yeah. You know, and they're having actually having her in such a way where they shoot it at certain frame, 12 frames a second and they have her going slow motion then when they speed that up to 24 she looks regular motion but her hair is flipping so wildly like it was she's falling yeah, yeah. like all that shit is brilliant you know what I mean or the idea of them just I don't know one third scale whatever is the the uh, the little uh, baby thing at the beginning when he's going down sure for people to think that whole opening sequence for the first three minutes during the amazing Danny Elfman score. That's all freaking miniature. Yeah, that's all you know? visual effects. <laughs> it's it's you know, you know it going down through the sewers and all that, and then the beautiful violins and the the the, the, the fucking wood. You know, wind. I was thinking about um, one of the other things I was thinking about while we watched this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Blake was just looking out the window. Blake, are you watching? I'm thinking, Dion. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about stuff. Yeah, stuff. Um, I think. One of the things that really captured the imagination for a lot of the people that wanted to make movies of our generation, like you and I have always, we've often talked about one of the things that got, made us interested in in um, wanting to pursue filmmaking uh, and go to film school was that we grew up seeing these special effects specials, the, the making of scenes, movies yeah. and we want, originally wanted to be like special effects artists, whether they were makeup effects or visual effects and I think part of what plays into that for our generation as being one of the first generations to be exposed to a lot of that behind the scenes kind of footage and seeing how the pulling the curtain back and showing us the magic behind of what how to make the movie magic is that all those metrics and stuff they're toys, really. Yeah, they're just little. <laughs> I mean, and you're like, I want to just play with toys for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I used to say one of the biggest bait and switches of my life, and I remember being in kindergarten thinking about this because I remember um, being in kindergarten and seeing like a Super Friends commercial, and it was of Batman in the Batmobile in the '80s, early '80s, and you see Batman and Robin in the Batmobile running around, and they're in Gotham City, and they're in like a. It's a toy. Kids are playing with it, but there's like skyscrapers and yeah, flying yeah. around doing stuff. And I was like, "That's the coolest thing in the world." You go buy the product and you get home, yeah, and you you're just playing on your carpet. Yeah, you don't have that. You know, place they never, you know, uh, Dick Tracy, uh, Ghostbusters. I remember even, well, even Ninja G. Turtles, I, even GI Joe. They had these elaborate, beautiful like uh, backgrounds that you never got. I, I cite Dick Tracy, uh, Beetlejuice. Uh, um, Dick Tracy, Ninja Turtles, and and Ghostbusters because they made actual cities. Yeah, you know, yeah. with like Dick Tracy had like steam coming out of the you know the, the sewer grate, you know, or the Ninja Turtles are jumping through, you know. And then when you get at home, it's like ah, so like you're saying, like you see these shows where it's like the behind the scenes of Batman, the original movie in 1989. It's like at the end of that with the parade, that was all 
you know, that's all models, and these are all these cities. These well, you like know, the boat in this, like the Basque boat. It's, yeah. it's all a model. That's a model. That's a, that's a miniature. Yeah, they and they, they and uh, Bo Welsh said like when he outsourced it to a particular company, he's like, you know, you, you need to come on with this, knowing that we we can't have it below this scale. It's got to be big enough to make it look like it's real to the point where they were designing the sewers. The sewers will have to be like eight feet wide and be a hundred, you know, they have to have the, the space to be able to have this thing flying around. And they're like, sure, we'll take care of it. To just think that they, the money that, I don't know, it's not wasted, but it's like spent to make, I never questioned when I was little that the Batsky boat was miniature. To me, you know, it looks real. Yeah, yeah. You know, it looks like they actually fabricated something and they're shooting around and they found a shooter to shoot in. Batmobile you know, turning into the missile. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they had a they had a full size one on set, but the transformation it's into it is all miniature. Model. Yeah, it's all model. It's all model work, and it's it's just amazing to that. You know, all that kind of and the practicality of it, like you know, figuring out what this does and all that. Uh, so it just occurred to me, like, you know, the light bulb went off. Of course, there's the idea of like creating movie magic that was enticing to I think kids of our generation and still enticing to us. Uh, but then thinking about like, oh, well, like this is just all toys. They're the, they're just creating those play sets that we saw on commercials yeah. that we didn't get to have. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of course, of course, this looked amazing to us as kids because like, who wouldn't want this giant model of Gotham City in their house? You know, my, in my growing up, my dad worked for the railroad, so I was around trains a lot. And growing up, I had a fascination with train sets and seeing like books on how to do like yourself at home to make a diorama or whatever. Like guys who were really into. You know the the different scales of yeah, yeah. local trains and doing like that. Rod Stewart. Yeah, you know, or what's his face who owns uh, Neil, Young. Neil Young, who owns all of um, what the hell's the name of the? Um, oh damn, it's on the tip of my tongue that the, the train uh, model line that does all the trains. Um, but it's that always amazed me how you make it look so realistic. Right, I follow that on Facebook. All these forums of doing sure, these. Yeah. So uh, it's breathtaking to see all that and, and you know and the behind the scenes and seeing them using these models as opposed to all just CGI and stuff um, and Welsh went on like I said he expanded you know what, what First was doing you know he says he combined like fascist architecture and uh, German expressionism and Russian architecture for these scenes uh, and then you bring in as well Stan Winston does the makeup effects of like say transforming Danny DeVito into the penguin yeah well you know it's uh, Certainly, that's the the Stan Winston's team. Because when well then, if you watch the special the special features and stuff, and you see like they're interviewing people, it's like Joe Schmo. Sorry, I don't remember your name. The guy that the the makeup designer. Yeah, and then you see V Neal's actually the person that puts the uh, makeup on Danny DeVito. So I don't know really how involved. You know, these guys have companies and they hire these people. So I don't. It's hard to tell how involved yeah, like, Stan was. was, you know, was hands he, on. he may have been overseeing it because they also got the project. They also built the animatronic uh, puppet penguins. That's another thing. It's like those are all those puppet of uh, the the penguins you see for the close-ups are uh, animatronic. Yeah. So they have you know they have a couple actual species of real penguins on set. The little guys. The, what do they call those? The king-sized ones? The emperor ones? Yeah. Uh, and then there was a third one that was the middle range. But then all the other ones that are actually standing around are all puppets. And that's, you know, they would CGI the shit out of that today. But then you look at the behind the scenes where they had to, it's like a Muppet. They had to build every one to move and do that. And, and then that's what Stan Winston's saying. Like, if you cannot tell, 
it's almost like a thankless job. Like we're yeah. building it so you can't even tell. We want the the penguin to have a reaction, you know. And then instead of trying to get that from shooting it for three days, yeah, they just build up, you know. And it's it's seamless. You don't even notice. But I do have to say that the whoever did end up who whether it's Stan Winston or one of his team members, whoever did design the penguin makeup, like the Danny DeVito makeup, um. It was just something that always stuck out to me as being like something marvelous. Well, you f- you forget Danny. He's so good, and he's so good. And it's he's a weird guy because when you watch him in interviews, he just seems like like he's like my dad. He's like, ah, oh, you know, I didn't know, but he gets into the roles. I had known Devito because probably he came onto my radar when I was really little. Romancing the Stone was huge for me. Joe Wilder, yeah. and he's hilarious. Well, I in watched that. Taxi a lot. And, yes, taxi. taxi, and then uh, I remember another big movie I loved was Throw Mama from the Train. Yeah. You know, so you, you, you knew who Danny DeVito was, twins. Sure. You know, uh, I actually rode an elevator with him once, and I couldn't talk to him because he was on the phone, but I was like, hey, look, it's Danny DeVito. Yeah. It, was a, it was actually a service elevator, which I think I brought you in, so it was quite intimate. It was him and the two people from because they were promoting It's Always Sunny on Philadelphia. Okay. So you know the guy who's, the guy and the girl who actually in real life end up becoming a item? Yeah. It was the two of them, and she was very nice, and he was cool too because I was showing him out. And Dan, he was, Dan DeVito gets on the cell phone, and I was like, oh, my God, it's Dan DeVito. I was going to be like, oh, I love Hoffa. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he's, I mean. He's he, amazing in it. He's so great in it. I was thinking, and he's like, unrecognizable. I was like, who was nominated for Academy Awards that year? Because like, I kind of feel like he probably should have been. Yeah, because you, you, you get, an, like, an empathy from his character and his, and his, and his you know, it took three or four hours to put the makeup on, and then they gave him a fat suit. And, which weighed like a hundred pounds or yeah, something. And then they gave they I they came up with that idea which wasn't canon to have him in that kind of like uh, uh, the uh, long johns kind of an outfit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then the long hair and balding on top, which was the departure we said from the traditional look. I also remember an interview with somebody back then. Yeah, see this is uh, we all remember these things. In ninety two. And I don't remember who the interview was with or what it was for, but somebody was talking about him in that movie. And it must have been somebody involved in the movie, not just like an admirer, but like someone who was maybe one of the other actors. And they were saying um, that what was so scary about him is that usually when an actor puts on those those makeups, like his he's acting, but his eyes are the same. But when you looked at Danny DeVito and he was acting like he didn't have Danny DeVito's eyes. So it was really scary. <laughs> yeah. And he stayed in character the entire time, even off between takes. He would still be doing that kind of thing. And when you watch it, like you really can't tell it's Danny DeVito. Even when you look in his eyes, you, to me anyway, I can't, you, like, I can't tell that that's Danny DeVito. And like, I just, so I've always loved that. Yeah. Um, his performance. Well, I mean, he doesn't bring the Danny DeVito baggage to it. And I've always loved that makeup because it's so creepy and like his teeth and then he's always like spewing out that black vial. Yeah, which was his idea. He says it was kind of like a, some food coloring maybe and I like mouthwash. I makes it. It was, mal- it was mouthwash with like red and blue food coloring which just made it kind of black. Yeah, and it was fro- f- to make it froth a little bit too. Like and the hydrogen peroxide of the uh, the mouthwash. And of course, you know, another thing that was big in our generation and also obviously the generation probably of the 70s is probably when it really started when you could go out and buy like you could they're not like they are now 
as complex and beautiful as they are now. But when you would you could go and you for Halloween you could buy like a rubber mask. Oh yeah. And I had this I still have it somewhere, a penguin mask. From the Batman Returns? From Batman Returns. And it's two pieces. There's a jaw piece mm-hmm. and then there's the head the face piece. And so like you could see the lines almost like a ventriloquist yeah. kind of dummy. But it was always so effective and we used to put it in our movies sometimes when I was in high school because that because it was so creepy. When you put it on it you just looked so scary. Uh and, you know, his design, if you look at uh, how he looks, it's so Tim Burton. And there's a couple sketches of when Tim Burton first cause it kind of designed him, the prototype of him, that he would design himself. Yeah, yeah. You when go on. Do all those sketches that you always see. Yeah, like rough the. sketches of characters. To me, you start. It's an idea he plays with because you see elements in Nightmare Before Christmas, the mayor with the big top hat. Hello. And then you, to me, you see that again almost in. Um, the Corpse Bride, Albert Finney's the father. Albert Finney, where he's, he kind of looks like he likes the rotund yeah. person. There's, with two, the, there's like no one in between. There's either like tall, <laughs> frail, skinny, thin, languid, yeah. or the little round character. Yeah, and he. Th- and this is the, the first embodiment of a 3D round character. Um, and, but he's got the. He's got like the dark eyes, just like you know. He does look when you look at the those rough sketches, those design sketches that Burton made of the penguin. It's like it's the way they ended up actually pulling it off. It's like the perfect embodiment of those sketches. And it's interesting when they have the posters of him running for mayor, you have it more the classical look of the comic book. He has the, you know, uh, in one point in the movie, they give him the cigarette hold, they give him the cigarette holder, they give him the monocle. He has the top hat. He doesn't really wear them together in conjunction. But if you look at the movie poster, he's got everything on. Yeah, yeah. He's doing the he's doing his best penguin. We forgot there is one more cameo we didn't re- remember of someone who appeared this year. Jan Hooks, God Rest oh, Her Soul yeah. from Saturday Night Live. She's in the, she was in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. There's no basement in the Alamo. That's true. What did she say? They're making tortillas. <laughs> she's chewing the gum. She's in the mayor when they're doing the mayoral run. She's the one helping out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, God Rest Her Soul. She passed away. She's in this. Um, and, you know, it, this... To me, I was trying to figure out... Also, the guy the guy in that scene is somebody, too. The guy who gets his nose bitten? Yeah. He's also in Hoffa, which came out the same year. And, but uh, he was on a sitcom. But, but Danny DeVito's character, what. he's like a he's, he's, an, he's a reporter trying to get a quote. And Danny DeVito like kicks the guy out of the office. So it's like he got beat up by De, De, DeVito in two movies the same year. <laughs> and DeVito directed Hoffa. So I wonder if there must be a, yeah. hey, you know, I'll use you here or whatever. Um, but, you know, you think about the look that... Burton made in this movie to me it almost lends itself like there was a little of it going around where like Adam's family came out around this time certainly has the Tim Burton kind of a look you know you can even maybe say to the layman like it was done by the same person like that dark gothic kind of you might even got it with Casper they did a they did remember they did the light with with what's his face Bill Pullman uh, you know and Christina Ricci but you see there was a lot of these movies of the era that I feel like they were you know this was so popular that Tim Burton kind of like Edward Scissorhands, sure. you know, look, uh, you know, they did a Beetlejuice cartoon show. There's something about um, these movies, like this movie specifically. They say that like the sets and stuff, it was like they're trying to make a bigger Gotham than they had in the first one. But there's something about it that just feels so claustrophobic to yeah, me. Yeah, when they keep going back to that one, the Gotham Plaza or Gotham Center, to me, it's like with the two big. Um, yeah, yeah. 
you know, big, almost like and you have almost like the Atlas, which you have in Rockefeller Center, but it's facing the other way of holding the Earth. It's like it is there is a claustrophobia because I remember saying it. I I don't know if I said it, but I kind of recall that I probably said the same thing with the first Batman. There is something when they shoot an entire movie on sound stages. It, add, it to me they it beca- they they tend to feel very claustrophobic. Now, in the case of this movie or Batman or whatever, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. No. I mean, there's something about there the, the thing the living in New York City. There are aspects of New York City that do feel claustrophobic. Sure, <laughs> you know the amount of people. Yeah, these giant buildings, but then because there's these giant buildings everywhere, you do feel kind of closed in. I think it works for the movie, but uh, it's definitely it's a feeling that I I get when we watch a lot of these movies that take place like entirely on sound stages. And to think, that and that it's something that like I kind of love about it because there's something like move only movie only a movie can it's feel like, that way. Like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's or uh, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, yeah, like yeah. how it's in completely done, and it's weird if you step back and think that this entire movie Batman Returns was shot on a soundstage. Yeah. They used I think like 50% of the Warner lot. They, they, the original idea was they were going to shoot in England again at Pinewood Studios like they did the first one and they spent like 250000 storing all those sets but I guess there was such a delay they couldn't just go off to the races and start shooting again. For whatever reason they ended up having to shoot in Warner Brothers yeah. so they used like half the, the, the sets available at Warner's and they kept moving around to the point where it's you know it's it's just there was just such massiveness, um, and this like you're saying the sets are so big and crazy and weird. And I do feel like people online have made a uh, an argument or a distinction about the influences of Burton. I remember in the maybe when we were in film school in the late '90s, the idea that Burton might be remaking the Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. Remember, and then Johnny yeah. Depp might have been. There was talks of that. Yeah, yeah, and. Burton was for a minute going to be doing the Superman movie at the time. There's screen tests. There's a, I th- what you say. There's a documentary now on it. Yeah. With screen tests of of Nicolas Cage. Evidently, because of this movie of Walken, he had uh, he had hired Walken to be Brainiac in that movie. But then it never came to be, and he ended up using him in Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Um. But uh, I wonder. You know, Burton does seem to have a fascination to a certain extent. If it's intentional, not with the silent era, the German expressionism. Sure, Edward Scissorhands looks exactly like Conrad Veidt in, in Doctor Calgary. Yeah, well, Max Schreck is is, is, is what's his face? Is the actor that played Nosferatu. Yeah, in Nosferatu. In, in, in Nosferatu. So it's, it's so there's a nod there where he's the name. It's the same. It's the name of the actor who played Nosferatu. Count Orlock and Nosferatu. Yeah. So it's so uh, it's interesting there that like. There seems to be a level, even later on, where they talk about, you know, uh, supposedly what kickstarted the whole idea was he, he watched London After Midnight, the Lon Chaney film, or he did no print. He, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't he didn't exist. watch it. But, but he, he read about it or whatever, or something about it, and that gave him the idea of, of, of having a sympathetic backstory for the Penguin. But like we were saying in the ballroom sequence, that is I certainly mean, a low. Because I could see like he's got the like the shark teeth. Yeah, and that look. And the, and the top hat. And that crazy, you know, the still stuff. And he's got the sunken eye, you know, the dark uh, yeah, ring with, around his eyes. In the, in the, you know, I could see very, how that, how the, the, the images we have of Cheney as and that part yeah. kind of could influence the look of, as the creeper or whatever of, he's called of, uh, of penguin. penguin but when you get to the ballroom sequence at the end of this it is certainly a play on uh, Phantom of the Opera Cheney 
and then the masquerade well, of the red well, death. Yeah. On the where you have the staircase, and you ha- yeah, you have the red. She's hiding behind the red skull. Yeah, in that when she comes down the stairs, so that's a, a clear homage to Phantom of the Opera, the original movie, the Lon Chaney Senior movie. Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of scenes where the the the, the um, that whole era of films, you know, where you, it looks like there are a lot of. Uh, he's taking things from like you know, and some people say you can even turn if you turn this to black and white, it's beautiful looking. Oh like, yeah, you do this straight I mean, contrast. It looks gorgeous, but I would also I would extend the that, Weimar Republic era of movies. Pictures. I would extend what you're saying about like that influence of silent era or you know uh, early gothic horror going into like the 30s with the Universal movies. The I, would, expressionism. I would I would ex- not just the the aesthetic, but I would extend it to the way. Uh, to the music that Danny Elfman writes for the movies, but also the way that the music is used within the movies. Oh, sure, yeah. Is very reminiscent. You know, back, back then, those movies were like wall-to-wall music. And uh, whether it was Max Steiner or whoever was, was scoring those movies or um, uh, some some of the composers are escaping my, my, uh, mind, my memory right now, but um, this movie is like, there's like 90-some minutes of music in this movie. Yeah. Which is a lot. It's 20 minutes more than Batman, than the original Batman. <laughs> I, and it's 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 substantially more than your average movie. And a lot of it is like this big, these big lush themes, which is the way a lot of those movies were scored back then. There oh, wasn't yeah. as much nuance with film scoring in a lot of those B horror movies of like the silent era, which was obviously all music, literally wall to wall music because sure. there was no other sound. But even when you get into things like Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, like the way music is used in those movies is very similar to the way that Burton and and, and Elfman used music yeah. in this mo- in and, these movies. And Elfman says that when he hired out to do Batman, he was a little intimidated because then when he the hadn't studio really done anything like that before, and then the studio said they want to do a kind of pop soundtrack where they were they were even talking about Michael Jackson coming or George Michael's. They finally get Prince, yeah. and they do the Prince. So I guess Elfman's initial idea was that he was going to be just really uh, conducting the orchestra for these bigger things. He's like, I don't want to do that. Well, Elfman, So he yeah, quit, right? Absolutely. Elfman put his career on the line, basically. Yeah. And they wanted him to work with this Prince. Is, this is the 1989 movie. Yeah, for the 1989 movie, they wanted him to like collaborate with Prince on the score. Yeah. Yeah. And Elfman said, no. Like, I'm sorry. Like, he wasn't... You know, now he's a big deal, but by that point, he really had done, like... Midnight Run and Pee Wee's Big Adventure yeah. <laughs> and Beetlejuice. Uh, he certainly had done some great scores for some notable movies, but you know he had certainly had it solidified himself as like you know he didn't have fuck you money back then for no. scoring movies sure. or position. So he really he said no, and he said and if you don't want and if you want to do that, then I'm not your guy. And he stood his ground, and ultimately it was they said okay. So they made they let you know Prince did his soundtrack. Of pop songs, yeah, and Elfman made the, made the score. And Elfman says when he he went to England, and then he visited the set, and he was so inspired that I guess on the flight back, it came to him all in the flight, and he was running to the bathroom from wherever first class wherever he was in, and he's recording to a tape recorder because he thought it'd be too loud. He didn't want to bother people, but then it's louder in the bathroom. But every five or ten minutes, he's getting up, going to the bathroom, and jotting a note down <laughs> yeah, so, you know yeah. he, he came up with the actual he says almost the entire score and then he's like people were like are you all right you know it's and it's before 9-11 and people sure. think of terrorism but he's and he gets the whole thing almost down in his head on that flight i mean his score for 
the original Batman '89, uh, and then this movie. It, I mean, it's iconic. I yeah. mean, it's iconic for our generation, but it's a it's a st- unfortunately it's a style of scoring that doesn't happen too often anymore. It's just not in vogue at the moment. Yeah, um, it's and it's so beautiful. The beginning. I mean, I'm a, such a ham for violins and strings and and freaking uh, just the whole like w- w- the wind instrument. And you hear like that. There's a scene with the violin doing this, the, doing the theme, and you see the. It's just, it's just so beautiful. Like you said, it lends itself to those older movies. Yeah, and he uses the way he uses c- chorus. It's haunting. It's, it's, it's very elf mask, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's like he created a style for himself, and. You know, many years ago, and I think maybe probably when we did the original movie, I, I I don't know if I had seen it yet, but at some point I did talk about it on the show where I went to see, his, like, they had an orchestra of yeah. Lincoln Center do his music, and he came out, and he sang the songs for Nightmare Before Christmas, but... Um, and it was like the, the, the visuals, they would project images, and it was... Uh, I don't even know if it was stuff from the movies... Definitely the majority of the visuals were Tim Burton's design sketches for all the movies. Oh, that's cool. It was like the music of the collaborations between Danny Elfman and Tim Burton was like the, the program. And I literally, when they started playing the Batman stuff, like my eyes got all watery. <laughs> it's, it, 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 like, it brings back, it it's tapped, so powerful. It tapped into something. It's like t- 10 years before people who with the Superman soundtrack or the yeah. Star Wars soundtrack. Yeah. You know, you just hear it and it's like, you know, oh my God. It's so, and like, oh my God, it's so you amazing. Know, you know, we grew up, um, the generation, our generation and the generation before, we grew up as John Williams kids. Yeah. You know, like those scores, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Superman, iconic. Yeah. I would say, you know, it might be 10 years later, but Danny Elfman's scores for Batman are just as iconic to me and tap into the same kind of childhood excitement that those other scores do when sure. I hear them. And then the fact that, you know, like it was, you know, he the theme for the animated series and then that that Shirley Walker, the music she wrote for the animated series, she did in that vein. Yeah. She was able to capture that sound of that that Danny Elfman had in Batman. So that musical language that she used was created by Elfman. So the, all that music just it it just it it taps into something in me and and it's, and that kind of that's the kind of stuff that made me want to pursue you know interviewing composers and finding out more about film music i mean sure. I, I focus on horror movies you know uh, in terms of the books and stuff but um lo- love Danny Elfman's music for for these movies uh you know getting back for a minute for the costumes while we I guess maybe start try to wrap all this up yeah we got um Bob Ringwood they were saying that they based I guess for the Winston makeup department they based some of the penguin stuff they looked at it and they looked at real deformities and how they can incorporate that in uh to his design uh for the Catwoman outfit uh the idea it was almost like they're looking at like uh like almost like glass you know like how she looks and she's they covered her and they had to keep covering her in silicone. Each they had, I guess, each costume cost a thousand dollars for her, and she went through I think like sixty different costumes each time. It's almost like the Batman costumes because the Batman the rubber that was done in such a way where I remember in the theater at the end of the movie when he rips his mask off. I'm like, what the fuck? It's so easy, <laughs> you know. Uh, in the book, they justify because he gets Max shoots him in the neck. 
that he, he takes the thing off because he's trying to stem the bleeding because yeah. he's bleeding and that's why he takes the mask off in the book. Um, but I was thinking as a side note, it's like you think about all the money, the fuck you money Bruce Wayne must have because everywhere he goes, he's just leaving shit. He's leaving. Every time he shoots something up, he leaves it there. Every yeah. time he throws something, he leaves it there. The Batarang, you know, it's like everything. Just there was just must be people everywhere. This market of getting Batman collectibles, and you know, he remember you, he has an amazing vault of all this. Stuff. <laughs> you know, every he has all the boots, all the stuff, and all that. They redesigned the Batman um, suit for where in the first movie the 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 logo is a little different and the chest plate and stuff looks a little more like human muscles yeah human anatomy yeah, yeah where in this one they made it a little more aerodynamic they almost look identical but then listening to what they were doing where Bo Welsh came in with the idea was make it a little more art decoy yeah. to make it look a little more like his you don't see so much on his chest plate muscles as opposed to it almost looks like art deco like plates yeah, yeah like, like you'd see a, like a, the front of a car or yeah something. and it's so cool because I'm such a I'm such fascinated. We've brought up Henry Dreyfus, the really legendary uh, uh, industrial designer in prior casts. If you don't know who he is, go look up Henry Dreyfus. But like the, I, I love that idea of people or Lowe's, I think his name is, the guy who used to do all that industrial design yeah, back yeah. then, the Art Deco design. It's funny because as a kid, I didn't even really notice the I, difference. I definitely noticed it, and I didn't like it Yeah, initially. Yeah, sure. I still prefer the first one, to be honest. Um, but I, the, the Batman Returns... Uh, costume for Batman grew on me because it's a little sleeker. Yeah, I think they also part of that was you know, the mask ended up being a little more aerodynamic looking. I think they also were maybe using a, a, a thinner rubber. Yeah, so there's not as much bulk. Sure, in it. and he still can't turn his head. But in those close-ups, when they they must have spent two days lighting that. When he's looking at Michelle Pfeiffer, yeah. and he's so dark, but his eyes, yeah, yeah, the eyes, and and you, I mean, you got sexy. I'm I'm heterosexual. But you got sexy Michael Keaton. <laughs> Michael Keaton looking so handsome and hot in this movie where he's just sitting there waiting and he gets up and he's all like, you know, in the, the turtleneck. He might be the you first know. person to ever describe Michael Keaton as that. Sexy Michael Keaton? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think he looks great in this movie. I think he's yeah. real hunky and all that. And like he looks, you know, he's all in shape and all that kind of a thing. But like, you know, he's got really nice, I mean, even Christopher Walken, they all got beautiful eyes. And, yeah. and it's interesting, Michelle Pfeiffer, which whoever we haven't really touched on her character, it's like her eyes... After everything happens, if you notice, they're always bloodshot. So yeah. they must have been done on purpose. Like your eyes, and it is a, in close up. It's a contrast to the black of her costume. But they say how hard it was. I remember when this came out back, like you just said, th- hearing stories where she was just chain smoking to curb her hunger because she couldn't really eat in the costume. She had to keep the weight. But then it would be so hard for her to get it on because it's rubber. They'd have to just douse her in talcum powder. And it'd be such a getting corsets on and all that. And once they get her on the outfit, uh, she said the first time she got into it, she couldn't hear, walk, or or just couldn't really move. But it's kind of like how Batman or Bruce Wayne or Nickel Keaton says that like he was laughing when these people came aboard because he wanted to have explained in the DeVito and Pfeiffer like, listen, you don't know what you're in for because he dealt it with it in the first movie. But their reactions of just being in these costumes yeah. and all this and being 12 hours a day on sets dressed yeah. like this, you know, when, there's a level of absurdity. Yeah. When Dion was talking earlier about her suit and having to apply, like, latex to it, basically she was wearing a rubber suit 
but they wanted to have that sheen. Yeah. So in between takes, they, they would just spray. They would, they would silicon. They would just spray the silicon on her so that it, so that it would always. They wanted it to look like you know, like she was liquid or it was like, glass. Yeah, or something. like that. Like because supposedly she takes like a rain like, jacket like, out, like and almost cuts that rain like jacket, almost up. like it wasn't a suit. Yeah, it's just like it's like a like almost like a T one thousand kind of a feel. You know, yeah. and she certainly like. I love the design of her apartment, where even like it's so. And I remember thinking that when I saw the movie that you, even though it's pink, and she tried to girly it up, you still see the beams encroaching in her apartment, and like the the industrialization of the Art Deco. There's nothing pretty about it. It looks like a like almost a, a an exaggeration of a New York City apartment. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then when she goes crazy, her like uh, in the book and in the movie, I think it's Miss Kitty who comes and saves her. And, she, and then in the book, she's carrying the cat around all the time, which you see. That's why the cat's there with her when the when the, she takes the canary and puts the canary in her mouth, yeah. which was done real. There's no CGI, evidently. However, takes she needed, they she took a canary and she put the or I may, whatever bird it is into her mouth to fly out. Um, but she has the, the the cat around a lot, and then at the end of the movie, that's how. Um, when Bruce Wayne sees, he, he says, oh, Miss Kitty, what are you doing here? He recognizes the cat. Yeah. And he's, he says it's Miss Kitty, and he brings the kitty in. But uh, it's it, her whole idea, her whole, her whole journey is interesting where she she has that fall, and she wakes up with the with you know, with the, them biting on her fingers and all that, and she, she kind of comes, and she comes in back to the apartment, and she destroys the apartment. Uh, it was always clever, I thought, what she does with the neons, where she takes the O and T off and yeah. makes hell here. Um, all that stuff's great, you know. And then her uh, her whole, like we said, is she a vigilante or is she, uh, you know, whatever the hell she, you know, what whatever the crap she is, whatever the deuce, you know. <laughs> uh, but then she, you, you know, you do feel a level of she's going along with it. She wants to hurt people. She's almost getting into the the realm for me of like the sexual masochism you see, like uh, Famke Jansen and Goldeneye. Where she's like getting off on killing people, which yeah, is like yeah. a form of eroticism. Like, oh my god! Like you almost get like a feel like Catwoman's going into that territory. But then, well, there's definitely an element of like feminist power. Yeah, you know, uh, you see it with the with the with the the mugger. But yeah. then it's like, but then she goes after the woman too. Then she kind of intimidates the woman, but but I and I always took it. I don't mean to cut you off. That she's almost there's a level of. Uh, like bisexuality as well. Like she's almost looking at, you know, why, when she's the Catwoman, she could be anything. You know, you don't yeah, know what yeah. she's gonna. Because she says to her, like, you know, uh, it's almost sexual. Like you know, you bring it on yourself. I'm, hey, I mean, you know, that real. Yeah, there are yeah. so many iconic lines in this movie. You know, where yeah. she says like meow, and the place blows up behind her. Or but it's also like when she's fighting Batman, and she's like, you know, but I'm a woman. <laughs> yeah, he's, like, he's like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but then she like then when she strikes, she attacks. I don't remember what she says, but it's her her dialogue while she's attacking after she said I'm a woman. It's like justifying like she's correcting him in that dialogue, if I recall correctly. Whereas like she wasn't saying, but I'm a woman. I'm weak. Why would you do this to me? Yeah. You know, she's basically, you know, attacking him not just with, you know, physically, but with like this this notion of like. You should fear me. I'm a woman. <laughs> and and uh, since you're at that scene, it's like all those rooftop sets are awesome looking. You know, I love all those. It's all the practice over there hanging on the side of the building. Or I love the, you know, with the penguin when they all the three of them meet each other. You know, as, as silly as his umbrellas are of him being able to fly away, that's all great. Yeah. You know, um, 
uh, you know, her climbing up the side of the building or so she she's along for the ride with the with the with the idea that to get back. But then I guess when when the ice princess gets killed, that she says that she's like, you know, why did you have to kill her? And you yeah. said you were just going to kill her. And that's funny. That he's like, well, she looked pretty scared to me. <laughs> you know, whatever he says to, you know, he's a, you know, and then I love that line where when he gets her and she starts flying away. And what does he say? He says, goodbye, my unintended. You know, go to heaven or whatever. Like, it's all it's very poetic. It's very yeah, like yeah. very Richard the Third. You know what I mean? Like him being deformed, coming back for his revenge. You know, so what does he say? Richard the Third is like, since since I cannot prove a lover, I should prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. It's like all that coming in. So, uh, like all, I've always loved Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, and she to me is an example of a beauty nowadays who hasn't destroyed it by doing cosmetic surgery to her face or at least not enough to yeah to make it noticeable yeah. Susan Sarandon's like that for me too like these beautiful women who've aged well and you know back going back to Scarface days or the sequel to Grease isn't she in Grease too she's in Grease too yeah or even is she in Hollywood Nights with Tony Danza it's the two of them I don't remember you know, but like you know so her in this movie it's you know, literally got, you know, and then when I was married reading the, to the mob, married to the mob. <laughs> yes. Great movie too. Um, it's like, to me, it's like, I was looking at the, the what ifs, which is a phone book of who they were thinking after Annette Benning to play this. Madonna comes to mind. I was like, Oh, Madonna might've been a good of that era of Dick Tracy or that, you sure. know, being like, cause you want that level of sexuality. So, well, that's the, I mean, and we touched on a little bit and I, I don't want to go down that rubble hole because we, we want to wrap up. But there is like there is a lot of sexuality in oh this movie. Oh my god! It's like not a- just her, but you know, even you, you could argue that you know, uh, Danny DeVito eating the fish in the mayor. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. His, his, you know, like the kind of the there's <laughs> a literal the cruder aspect yeah. of sexuality going on in that with that. Well, he, and he even like you know he would. There's the little like I never got that joke when I was little where she's like he's like how hard was it and she's like semi hard where it's like you know, or when he says like you know I got that but he's like just a pussy I'm looking for you know it's like yeah, yeah. or the poontang it's like there are a lot of and in the book like I said that there is a level of him like you know there's a there's a also I guess what they say the darker tone with the violence is also the idea of the darker the sexual aspects of. Catwoman being very sexy, you know. Well, I was very attracted to her, you know. Well, it's also interesting when you look at it in the context of the first movie, which I never really thought of as being a very sexual movie. But he actually, they do have sex in that movie. Vicky Vale yeah. and Batman do have sex sure. in that movie. Whereas this is like, there's no actual act of sex that happens. But the mo- this movie is much more sexual in yeah. its execution and its content and its dialogue than the, than the previous Batman. And they're even able to bring a level of Batman 66 into this when the scene when Catwoman and Bat, uh, Catwoman and Penguin meet and they're kind of forming the scene with the, the the bird in the mouth that yeah. is almost a scene out of you need the the the, the frame almost dutched to have it be like a Batman layer or a villain yeah, layer yeah. from that like the little absurd or at the end when she's like I'm gonna li- I feel dirty I'm gonna lick my and she starts licking herself you're like oh my god you know and he's like you know you know it's like and there's even like a hint there is like because he feels like he she's she's making a pass at him so that's why he gets gives her a, he gets her a ring and he's serious he wants to like marry her because you know that's when she's like now what do you and then in the book she's like was i coming on too hard for him to think i was actually that's why she's like no you're out of my league i wouldn't even i i, I she's like, i wouldn't even touch you whatever and that's when he decides to get rid of her yeah. um it's you know there's a lot of uh almost sexual tension in this movie that i guess was f- f- was too dark because i remember too 
McDonald's was behind a huge ad campaign. And I remember when I was little, and you get the Happy Meal. You get the different stuff. And, I, and supposedly they recalled this, but I don't remember this ever being recalled. But I, I, I think they had glasses as well, but they had all, I had all the, they're in my mom's attic or my parents' attic and all the, the toys. So when they're trying to pump this movie, McDonald's was kind of like, this is dark. Like, and <laughs> I think the quote they say is like, what's, McDonald's was like, what's the black stuff coming out of Penguin's mouth? Yeah, you know, yeah. so they had a lot of obje- objections to the, how dark the movie was, and a lot of people were also upset were about Batman killing people because he, yeah. in this movie, he kills two people. He kills the guy from uh, over the top, and that you can imply that he killed the guy he set on fire. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. if he, the guy didn't survive, so, and then especially with the guy with the, from over the top, he's doing it with a smile. But the 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 in question that people say it's begged to be answered what's worse is it worse for batman just to, at the end of the first batman he's killing people and up at the cathedral he's you know yeah. people falling you know he's bursting in he's using guns and he's yeah he's shooting he's killing all the joker's gang at the yeah he's got guns on the batmobile that people are pissed off about yeah. he's got guns on the batwing he's got what are they like they're like freaking m60s or m8 you know of, of, of uh, what do you call it uh machine guns from world war one the brownings but it's like what's worse is it worse him killing these people or is it worse him capturing these supervillains bringing them th- and they're just going to break out again and kill a bunch of people yeah. you know is it worse him keeping them alive for them to just go on another day and cause more violence brutality depravity or is it him well, offing you know it's, it, well it's an interesting dilemma in yeah. that it, it, it is a little hypocritical in that we do see him kill two people in this movie but then he's not telling Catwoman remember he's like but don't the, yeah but then Catwoman wants to kill it and she's like you know, let's bring him to justice. We'll take put him in jail. And she's like, "Well, jail doesn't hold guys like this." Yeah, you know. And so she's kind of the, that voice of reason, like that. She's throwing it in his face. Yeah. She's like, "You're able to do it over here, but when I want to do it for for justifiable reasons, you're saying no, 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 no." Yeah, yeah. So there's a little again of the. It does show the I guess the you know them being on the same uh, road of of having a hidden identity. Yeah, and a real yeah. thing that the the toll it takes, and then the uh, just the, where you can go with it. Well, why don't why can't I kill people if you're killing people? It's 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 a real yeah. interesting kind of a uh, yeah an idea that's a, pressed. There's a depth to this movie that I think it's so subtle, or at least not so explored. Yeah, that it can be lost on. On the viewers, but I think that, like there's a lot of stuff, just a lot of which I talked about already. But also one of the things that I really love about this movie, and, and I think it's a, you know, one of the things that we insinuated earlier, and we said we'd maybe get back to it about Tim Burton not doing another one, is that this movie's fucking weird. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not like super weird, and it's not maybe weird in in in, in certain senses. But one of the things I've always liked about this movie is just like the weirdness of the the, the penguin makeup, the black stuff coming out of his mouth, the what he rises out of the water at the end with the blacks coming. It's so yeah, he's like bleeding it's out. So he's, frightening. Yeah, and then he's and then he's just how he dies, and then the fu- the funeral sequence with the penguins, and the fact that like you know, there's this moment when he's in the 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 boat. Batman's in the oh, boat. He's coming, and you see the the penguins come up, and they shoot missiles, and the thing spins. And, you know, he spins around the sides of the of the, the tunnel, yeah. And then he cuts back inside, and he looks out the window. And you can just see, like, even Batman's like, "This is crazy." Yeah. 
We're in Whack Town now. <laughs> like penguins or the duck, you know. And I and and I guess they're all. I thought he was able to talk to the the penguins, but I guess the implication is he's a, he was able to. He has some sort of radio that control device yeah. to to control them, and that's what the girl with the poodle's doing up in the in the thing is controlling yeah, yeah. them. When he gets mad, when the penguins start to come back, when they jam the signal. Uh, they wait to the last second, and when Alfred's able to jam the signal and the penguins start to come back, he gets so killed, he picks up an umbrella, and he kills again one of the the the, uh, the, the guys, the clown guys, Aaron, just to get to yeah. feel better, almost like uh, Joker doing to Bob the Goon. Yeah, and yeah. then there's also a theme, and we're kind of wrapping up, but in these movies where the villain comes on TV and poses an open challenge to Batman... Where like in Joker's, like I've taken my makeup off. Why don't sure. you show up to the parade or here? Um, doesn't Oswald come make a speech? Let's see if the Batman will protect us. You know, it's almost there. There's always them trying to just call out yeah, the, the, yeah. the, you know, um, in the movie or in the book. In the in the movie, I really liked was near the end when they all kind of fade into the darkness. They're like, well, you're on your own at this point. Yeah, yeah. Where uh, that's not in the book, but I always thought that was pretty cool. That like just the like, fact you know, that those characters exist and the way they look is just another aspect of the weirdness that I like about this movie. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. There's another scene when she comes back and she's still being a secretary. There's a scene where she makes him coffee, uh, Shrek, and she puts a roach in it, and he spits that roach out. So she's fucking with him. Yeah. That's not in the movie. Then at the end when. Uh, she kills Christopher Walken. There is a scene of uh, like a page or two of at Gotham Plaza where the whole city's lights like dim, and then um, Gordon's like, "Wow, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad everything's okay. Will Batman ever forgive us?" Like that kind of a thing, which isn't in the book either. Uh, or, I'm sorry, which isn't in the movie either. But um, yeah, it's incredible, and even how it looks. How it's shot, like just the the beautiful Christmas, the whites with the blue, a oh, lot yeah. of that, it's that blue, you know, the, what is that? Almost like a uh, kind of a uh, sepia, almost yeah. way. How that looks. Uh, but what I was kind of saying earlier was, uh, you know, leading, you know, alluding to what we were talking, what I mentioned earlier, and we'd get back to it, is giving Burton the free reign to do the the Batman movie that he wanted to make. And Dion talking about even, you know, and then McDonald's was like, this is pretty dark, guys. Yeah, we're <laughs> making know? toys for this. You know, essentially what happened was Tim Burton, he made what I, what I've already stated as my favorite Batman movie, but in doing so, you know, sealed his fate as to not making another one. And that basically Warner Brothers came to him and. They were be like, yeah, well, you know, you don't want to do another one, do you? Well, he he came and met with them to 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 do part three. Yeah, and, and he, he had all these ideas of like the Robin and the Two Face and all that. And then I guess he said in the meeting, he kind of realized they were yeah, like, like oh, don't wait, you want to go do another Edward oh, wait, Scissorhands? You don't want to do another one. <laughs> and then he said to him, he's like, you know, uh, let's just get over this now. Let's not, you know, try to freaking. Uh, lie to ourselves here, bullshit yeah, ourselves. Yeah. This is, and then they kind of said no. And, and it's interesting because I never thought of that. That because there was a, th- this got great reviews and all this kind of thing, but there was a backlash. People were mad. Some parents thought it was too dark. Uh, Kenner said we're not putting a penguin out looking like that. So they made the toy look like the older, you know, uh, Super a, Friends. I mean, it is a pretty dark movie. So I because mean. of that, that's the reason why. Uh, they overcompensate and they bring Joel Schumacher in to lighten it up and they go more towards 66. And that goes the complete other direction to when you get to Batman and Robin where it's, again, there's nipples on the suits and it's camp and it's this crazy uh, 
uh, neon, which we saw earlier in a, a year, and, and I forgot something that had all the. It looked pretty cool, the neon spray paint. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, it's all it's all that really weird. Uh, I mean, I thought some of it was absurd when I was little, like him getting the idea for the Batmobile, the plans in the book. They justify it saying that Shrek had to pay a fuckload of money, and they, they were able he was able to find uh, someone who had access to the plans, who was a disgruntled. Uh, employee and that's how they got the design plans and that's how they were able to take it apart and put it you know that kind of which I thought that would be cool if they kept that in just to give a kind of segue because it is a little more of the absurd town of him just the clown gang being able to tinker and figure out yeah you know but but, you know it's something I I buy into you know it's a a weird crazy world Uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. And then at the end of it before that we're a little ahead of ourselves so when they test it uh, people want to. They liked the character so much. They wanted to keep Catwoman because they were thinking of actually doing a a spinoff movie or having her in the next movie. So, like two weeks before the movie is done, uh, they're like, "We need to have a shot of Catwoman in it." So they spend two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to just have this shot at the end of when Cat when it rises up. Yeah, and, and you see, see the, the bath signal, and then you see her rise into frame. And what they were going to do is they. Michelle Pfeiffer was attached to star and Tim Burton was attached to direct first the third movie and then a Catwoman spinoff and that languished in development hell for a couple of years and they were still talking about yeah we're, we're ready we're into it and then you know life got in the way and other commitments so Michelle Pfeiffer bailed they had somebody else involved but then finally in 2004 that's what comes out to be that Holly Berry movie yeah. Catwoman was, was the spinoff of which I don't know if that is canon they I've just, never seen it. Yeah, I never saw it either. And I heard it wasn't very good, but, you know, I'm, who am I to judge? But uh, so that was that. It, but that's so that's another breadcrumb of why they kept that, because Tim Burton thought he was coming back to the property. And the the, the studio said, hey, you know, we need you to, to come back and fill this out, you know. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about it. And certainly as a kid, I didn't think about it by the time Batman Forever came out. But, I mean, I guess in, in my mind, there was always this thought of like, oh, well, Tim Burton must have not not he must have not wanted to make another one and that's why he didn't make another one like it didn't occur to me until researching this movie that it wasn't that he didn't want to do another one although he didn't want to do the second one initially yeah <laughs> but but he was into it he was like i think he was ready to come back for yeah, that third that it was warner brothers that was like yeah no man don't you go do something else tim and it would have been interesting because i think it would have been more darker we would have been getting more towards either very burtony or very more dark that we're talking about that we like that people criticize the yeah. other way around um i mean it, you know it's certainly fascinating and uh you know it's 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 weird. It's it's very, it's interesting. All the different stuff that come to, to, together in this kind of movie and make it this beautiful kind of thing that we, uh, you know, we we know of today as as Batman Returns. Um, yeah, honestly, I don't know what. And that's can... why Keaton, Ke- you know, I remember back in the day them saying, "Well, if Tim Burton ain't coming back, I'm not coming back." And that's why Keaton ran too. Keaton jumped ship because he Keaton was like, "I'm only came back for a paycheck in the second one." Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, he kept his lines minimal. He had an idea what he wanted to do with the character. Uh, we should note that there's an interesting featurette that came out at the time that is on the special features of Batman Returns, hosted by Robert Urich (laughs) of the Spencer for Hire fame, God rest his soul. He's passed away too. He was also, he's in Magnum Force. And he also did an extensive Dirty Harry. If you get the Dirty Harry box set, he 
did four or five featurettes the same way. That was back then. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit had the same thing when the movie come out they'd have around the same time a TV special showing the behind the scenes in Robert Urich they had the sets all still standing with the Batmobile so you have the actor Robert Urich walking around with his you know his hood uh, his collar up the sets where the Batmobile rolls up or he's looking around Gotham Plaza and he's doing like just wraparounds of the behind the scenes of the actors talking that's pretty cool God bless Robert Urich Um, and then there's a big animal motif in the whole movie Catwoman Penguin Batman Batman, all the animals and that that they each have their own animal or yeah yeah. like there's 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 bats in the movie there's cats in the movie he's got these penguins Uh, then they they use real penguins and people were worried about the penguins but they said they treated them very well they they brought them over especially from England in like refrigerated parts and planes and they had their own uh, dressing rooms because they had to keep it under a certain temperature to make them they had a security guard there to make sure that everything was okay they kept the sets really cold like 50 degrees to make sure that the, that the penguins were comfortable and it was that's why you see a lot of the breath which I think is yeah. awesome and all that kind of a thing I mean I don't know what the consensus is about how pe- what people think about this movie I mean you've talked a little bit about how younger generations look back on the, ba- on the Tim Burton Batman movies and think they're a little bit uh, cheesy or campy or whatever I certainly you know, up until we did Batman 89, you know, four years ago, I certainly was of, like, the mind of, like, oh, Batman 89 does not age well. But then when we watched it for the podcast, I had a, I remember having a blast watching yeah. it. <laughs> and I remember always kind of liking this one better. Um, you know, when we were in college, when it was like, oh, Batman 89 doesn't, hasn't aged too well. But I still kind of, I still think Batman Returns is, is pretty great. So I don't know, like, what people think about it. Maybe uh, you, the listeners, can message us on social media. Yeah, let, and us, let know us know what, what you think. You, what do you think of Batman Returns? I've, Whether you like it more than uh, or or as much or less than the Batman '89 or you know the Nolan movies or, or even now since then we've had the Ben Affleck revisionist yeah. for the Justice League movies. You know, uh, I don't know how people even think of that or the Lego movie stuff. And it was cool that they brought for the Lego Batman movie they brought Billy Dean to do the Two Face. <laughs> You know, as the voice, so that's yeah. pretty cool. Um, and I, I don't know, because it's just, I, I feel like nowadays more than ever, I'm defending the, the Tim Burton movies for people like it. But for people our age, understand it. But there's other people who are our age who are of the mind you had who haven't watched it in 20 years thinking, now that's not going to age well. That's going to be yeah, silly. Yeah. But and then when you watch it, you're like, oh, it's pretty good. But then I feel like younger people are more akin to equated to the 66, you know, which is sad because I love the, the 66 stuff aside. Like, I think these movies are really, you know, aside from being uh, the, the, how artful and, and, and the example they set, they, they set the, we wouldn't have what we have today, these superhero movies. Yeah. You know, so um, I don't know if there's anything we've missed. We've tried to put all everything together, really, right? Yeah. This was supposed to be a short one. And, yeah, it was freaking <laughs> huge, huge, huge. Uh, but this is the Christmas episode. So, you know, we're, we're about ready to get to bed. You know, the, uh, the, we got to turn the fire back on on the Jolly DVD player. Satan next is going to be coming soon. We, we don't want to scare him off. on the roof. Yeah, because I want to get my Chris. I don't want him to fly over. You know, uh, we're going to leave out stuff for him. But um, check us out on social media. Uh, check us out at clnsmedia.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. 
uh, at Sat Sleepovers. At Sat Sleepovers, we have our own website, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. You can find us there with extras uh, to, at each cast and, and all kinds of stuff. We're now on Spotify. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on uh, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. I was going to say iTunes, but no longer Apple Podcasts. All kinds of places. Uh, wherever you're listening now. Baya uh, has a book. I have a book, Blood in the Streets. You can get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books. Uh, uh, paperback, ebook, or audiobook. Uh, if you like uh, thrillers, 70s cop movies, I never know really how to describe it, historical fiction, go check it out. Blood in the Streets. Uh, I got uh, Score to Death Conversations with some of Horror's greatest composers. Uh, it's on Amazon, other book retailers, or from me directly at scoretodeath.com. Uh, Score to Death, the podcast, has been on hiatus, but we have back episodes there, and I hope to get back to that podcast at some point in the near future. And uh, unfortunately, the upcoming episode, last Saturday of December, of Cuts from the Crypt will be my last episode of Cuts from the Crypt, the damn fine network that uh, hosts that show and was uh, kind enough to ask me to be a part of it. Um, they're, they're, st- they're stopping. So they're closing their doors. All, all of the uh, damn fine network uh, shows are coming to a close, although for the foreseeable future, they'll be archived that you can go listen to them. Uh, wherever you find podcasts, but uh, so uh, leading up to just before New Year's, you'll have I'll have the f- final episode of Cuts from the Crypt. But you can always go back and listen to my past episodes of the year. It was a good run, 2019. It was a good, was a good run. Yeah. yeah, and we we always like to say, you know, you want to support your local podcaster. If we're authors, please grab our books. We're both right now uh, in the season of writing our new books, so we're under time schedule. Um, this is the last episode of 2019. Uh, we hope you've liked what we've given you and gone out there to do. Uh, check us out, like we said. Um, we'll be back in two weeks, or no? We'll be back uh, soon. In, yeah, in the middle of January, we'll be <laughs> back. You know, resetting the table for for 2020, and we'll have a you know uh, stuff to talk to you about then when we get to there. Uh, so we hope you have a good holiday season. Enjoy it with friends. Remember what it's all about. Some of the advice I need to remember most is to take the time to remember what the little things and not to sweat the big details and just be thankful for stuff you have because some people don't have it. So, yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year as well. Remember the family and friends in your life. Uh, you know, Blake and I are going to sit here. I guess we're going <laughs> to maybe polish off the rest of this eggnog, figure out what these presents. Oh, last thing. That was something else I want to think. You know, at the beginning of the movie where Shrek takes the stuff out and he starts throwing presents at the crowd and people are wowing. Either those are empty boxes, people are open like, what the fuck? Or he's throwing appliances <laughs> at people. He's like throwing like an air fryer at somebody else. He's throwing like a toaster knocking people out. So I thought that was funny. Anyway, yeah, we're going to check check the presents under there and maybe shake them to see what they are. Maybe open that bottle of mold wine, I don't know, or just pass out looking up at the Christmas tree. So, happy new year, merry Christmas, happy holidays, and we'll see you in 2020. Later. Toddy for the body might just take the chill off. What are you featuring here tonight, Frank? Oh, I got some fine jazz. Oh, it looks clever. Funny thing, I, I keep hearing bells all day. Well, naturally, everybody does this time of the year. What do you say we, we get aboard the sleigh, huh? Here we go. 
Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Grab the verse. Dashing through the snow yeah. in a one-horse open sleigh. All the fields we go, laughing all the way. While the bells on bobtails ring. Tell me about it. Making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Isn't just a lot of fun. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse.